The following is a conversation with Cal Newport. He's a friend and someone who's writing like his book, Deep Work, for example, has guided how I strive to approach productivity and life in general. He doesn't use social media and in his book, Digital Minimalism, he encourages people to find the right amount of social media usage that provides value and joy. He has a new book out called A World Without Email, where he argues brilliantly, I would say, that email is destroying productivity in companies and in our lives. And very importantly, he offers solutions. He is a computer scientist at Georgetown University who practices what he preaches. To do theoretical computer science at the level that he does it, you really have to live a focused life that minimizes distractions and maximizes hours of deep work. Lastly, he's a host of an amazing podcast called Deep Questions that I highly recommend for anyone who wants to improve their productive life. Quick mention of our sponsors, ExpressVPN, Linode Linux Virtual Machines, SunBasket Meal Delivery Service, and Simply Safe Home Security. Click the sponsor links to get a discount and to support this podcast. As a side note, let me say that deep work or long periods of deep focused thinking have been something I've been chasing more and more over the past few years. Deep work is hard, but is ultimately the thing that makes life so damn amazing. The ability to create things you're passionate about in a flow state where the distractions of the world just fade away. Social media, yes, reading the comments, yes, I still read the comments, is a source of joy for me in strict moderation. Too much takes away the focused mind, and too little, at least I think, takes away all of the fun. We need both, the focus and the fun. If you enjoy this thing, subscribe on YouTube, review it on Apple Podcast, follow on Spotify, support on Patreon, or connect with me on Twitter at Lex Friedman, if you can only figure out how to spell that. As usual, I'll do a few ads now, none in the middle. I try to have fun with them more and more, AKA, I try not to give a damn what the sponsors are actually requesting. I try to only include sponsors I actually use and love. So if they wanna drop me, that just means they don't love me back. And any successful relationship requires two-way love, my friends. So please do support the sponsors while they're still here because they may not be here for long. This show is sponsored by ExpressVPN. Yes, it's a thing that protects your privacy. And yes, it's a thing with a big red button that I just can't get enough of. But it also lets you watch stuff on Netflix that are geo-restricted in some way. There are thousands of shows that are only available on Netflix outside of the United States. I did not know there are places outside of the United States. I have heard about places like Australia, but other than that, I thought it was just the 50 we got. ExpressVPN lets you fake your location, hence how you can get the whole Netflix thing to work. I do think that at the core of what a VPN does, there's a lot of interesting ideas about the future of how human beings that are operating in the physical space are going to function successfully in the digital space. It feels like there should be layers of protection where the person has the control about how much information is revealed. A VPN is a strong layer, but I wonder if we'll be adding more and more layers, which will enforce greater privacy and put more control in the hands of people versus governments and nations, all that kind of stuff. Anyway, go to expressvpn.com slash Lexpod 
to get an extra three months free on a one-year package. That's expressvpn.com slash lexpod. This episode is also sponsored by Linode, which are Linux virtual machines. It's an awesome compute infrastructure that lets you develop, deploy, and scale whatever applications you build faster and easier. This is both for small personal projects and huge, huge systems. <laughs> Linode pretty effectively challenges AWS, so I'm really excited about that because competition is always good. I could list a bunch of ways they stand out, but the one that really jumps to me is the customer service with actual real human beings, 24 seven, 365. I've actually been locked out of Instagram recently. I send uh, my love to the engineers at Instagram or Facebook. I mean, these are just amazing people, but and a lot of them have uh, written to me with just a lot of love, which I really appreciate, but sort of that's like personal stuff. That's not customer service. Customer service is creating a pipeline where if shit goes wrong, you can always communicate with somebody and fix it. And okay, you can argue that Instagram is probably not as important as a computer infrastructure, and you would be 100% right, which is why it's especially important that Linode provides that customer service. I could say a lot of other stuff, just the interface, just everything is really easy, everything is really nice, I'm a big fan, hence why they're a sponsor. If it runs on Linux, it runs on Linode. I think that's their superhero catchphrase. Visit linode.com slash lex and click on create free account button to get started with 100 bucks in free credit. That's linode.com slash lex. This show is sponsored by Sunbasket. These guys and gals deliver fresh, healthy, delicious meals straight to your door. As you may know, my diet is pretty minimalist, so it's nice to get some healthy variety into the mix. And by nice, I mean it's something that I'm told humans enjoy. I'm not a big fan of fun. It's a distraction. But if you are a fan of fun and variety, they have delicious, now that I'm a fan of, prepared meals, meal kits, and raw ingredients, like just a nice New York strip steak. And now I'm officially hungry. I think my favorite meal would be just a nice steak with a side of vegetables. Sunbasket has a bunch of different varieties of that. And I think on top of that, steak and veggies will be just like a, a good friend. Oh, add some wine into the mix. Maybe wine at first and then some vodka. It's kind of interesting how central food is to social interactions. Anyway, what was I saying? Oh yes, Sunbasket is offering $35 off your order when you go to sunbasket.com slash Lex and enter promo code Lex at checkout. Again, that's sunbasket.com slash Lex. Use code Lex. How many times can I say Lex to get 35 bucks off your order? This show is also sponsored by Simply Safe, a home security company. Protect your home with a simple 30-minute setup. You can customize the system for your needs on simplysafe.com/lex. I have it set up in my apartment and I love it. The ad reads today are great. So Simply Safe is the protection in physical space. ExpressVPN is the initial protection in digital space. How cool would it be? if there is not like a hybrid physical digital space, and then we have tools that we can carry from the physical to the digital and back. The protection will come along with us. And of course, if the anarchists have their say, that will be provided by private companies and will compete over their customers and through that process of capitalism would then create the best product and the most affordable product. That is, if the anarchists have their way. <laughs> Michael Malice has entered the chat. 
Anyway, go to simplysafe.com slash Lex to customize your system and get a free security camera. Yes, friends, I said free. Again, that's simplysafe.com slash Lex. And now, here's my conversation with Cal Newport. What is deep work? Let's start with a big question. So, I mean, it's it's my term for when you're focusing without distraction on a cognitively demanding task, which is something we've all done, but we had never really given it a name necessarily that was separate from other type of work. And so I gave it a name and said, let's compare that to other types of efforts you might do while you're working and see that the deep work efforts actually have a huge benefit that we might be underestimating. What does it mean to to work deeply on something? I, you know, I had been calling it hard focus in my writing uh, before that. Well, so the context you would understand, I was in the theory group in CSAIL at MIT, right? So I was surrounded at the time when I was coming up with these ideas by these professional theoreticians. And that's like a murderer's row of thinkers there, right? I mean, it's like Turing Award, Turing Award, MacArthur, Turing Award. I mean, y- y- you know the crew, right? Theoretical computer science. Theoretical right? computer science, yeah. Yeah. So so I'm in the theory group, right? <laughs> Doing theoretical computer science. Uh, and I publish a book. So, you know, I, so I, I was in this milieu where I was being exposed to people uh, where focus was their tier one skill. Like, that's what you would talk about, right? Like, how how intensely I can focus. That was the V key skill. It was like your 440 time or something if you were a, an athlete, right? So, so this is something that people were actually, the, uh, the, the theory folks are thinking about? Oh, yeah. Really? Oh, yeah. Like they're openly discussing like how do you focus? Th- I mean, I don't know if they would, you know, quantify it, but but focus was the tier one skill. So you you would come in. You, here would be a typical day. You'd come in, uh, and Eric Domain would be sitting in front of a whiteboard, yeah, right, with a whole group of visitors who had come to work with them, and maybe they projected like a, a grid on there because they're working on some graph theory problem. You go to lunch. You go to the gym. You come back. They're sitting there staring at the same. Same whiteboard, right? Like that's the tier one skill. <laughs> this is the difference between different disciplines. Like I, I often feel for many reasons like a fraud, but I definitely feel like a fraud when I hang out with like either mathematicians or physicists. It's like, it feels like they're doing the legit work because when you talk closer in computer science, you get to programming or like machine learning, like the, the, the experimental machine learning or like just the engineering version of it, it it's it feels like you're gone so far away from what's required to solve something fundamental about this universe. It feels like you're just like cheating your way into like some kind of trick to figure out how to solve a problem in this one particular case. Yeah, that's how it feels. Like, right, and it's uh, I'd be interested to to hear what you think about that because um, programming doesn't always feel like you need uh, to think deeply, to work deeply, but sometimes it does. So it's, it a, does. it's a weird dance. Uh, for sure code does, right? I mean, especially if you're coming up with original algorithmic designs, I think it's a great example of deep work. I mean, yeah, the the, the, the hardcore theoreticians, yeah, they, they push it to an extreme. I mean, I, I think it's like knowing that athletic endeavor is good 
and then hanging out with a Olympic athlete. You're like, oh, I see that's what it is. Right. Uh, now for the grad students like me, we're not anywhere near that level, but the faculty, the, the faculty in that group, these were the cognitive Olympic athletes. But coding, I think, is a classic example of deep work because I got this problem I want to solve. I have all of these tools and I have to combine them somehow creatively and on the fly. But, but so basically I had been exposed to that. So I was used to this notion when I was in grad school and I was writing my blog, I'd write about hard focus. You know, that was the term I used. Then I published this book, So Good They Can't Ignore You, which came out in 2012. So like right as I began as a professor. And that book had this notion of skill being really important for career satisfaction, that uh, it's not just following your passion. You have to actually really get good at something and then you use that skills as leverage. And there was this big follow-up question to that book of, okay, well, how do I get really good at this? <laughs> yeah. And then I look back to my grad school experience. I was like, huh, there's this focus thing that we used to do. I wonder how generally applicable that is into the knowledge sector. And so as I started thinking about it, it became clear there's this interesting storyline that emerged that, okay, actually undistracted concentration is not just important for esoteric theoreticians. It's important here and it's important here and it's important here. And that involved into the, uh, the deep work hypothesis, which is across the whole knowledge work sector, focus is very important. And we've accidentally created circumstances where we just don't do a lot of it. So focus is the sort of prerequisite for basically, uh, you say knowledge work, but basically any kind of skill acquisition, any kind of major effort in this world. Can we break that apart a little bit? Yeah. So, so a key, a key aspect of focus is not just that you're you're concentrating hard on something, but you do it without distraction. So a, a big theme of my work is that context shifting kills the human capacity to think. So if, if I if I change what I'm paying attention to to something different, really, even if it's brief, and then try to bring it back to the main thing I'm doing, that causes a huge cognitive pileup that makes it very hard to think clearly. So even if you think, okay, look, I'm writing this code or I'm writing this essay, and I'm not multitasking and, and all my windows are closed and I have no notifications on. But every five or six minutes, you quickly check like an inbox or your phone. That initiates a contact shift in your brain, right? We're going to start to suppress some neural networks. We're going to try to amplify some others. It's a, it's a pretty complicated process, actually. There's a sort of neurological cascade that happens. You rip yourself away from that halfway through and go back to what you're doing. And now it's trying to switch back to the original thing, even though it's also your brain's in the process of switching to these emails and trying to understand those contexts. Uh, and as a result, your ability to think clearly just goes really down. And so, it's fatiguing too. I mean, you do this long enough, you you get midday and you're like, okay, I can't, I can't think anymore. Mm -hmm. You've exhausted yourself. Is there some kind of um, perfect number of minutes, would you say? So are we talking about focusing on a particular task for, you know, one minute, five minutes, 10 minutes, 30 minutes? Is it possible to kind of context switch while maintaining deep focus, you know, every 20 minutes or so? So if you're thinking of like this, again, maybe it's a selfish kind of perspective, but if you think about programming, you know, you're focused on a particular design of a little bit, maybe small scale on a particular function or large scale on a, on a system. And then the shift of focus happens like this, which is like, wait a minute, is there a library that can achieve this little task or something like that? And then you have to look it up. This is the danger zone. Yep. You go to the internets. Yeah. And and so you have to, now you, it is a kind of context switch because as opposed to thinking about the particular problem, you now have switched thinking about like uh, consuming and integrating knowledge that's out there that can 
plug into your solution to a particular problem. It definitely feels like a context switch, but is that is that a really bad thing to do? So should you be setting it aside always and really trying to as much as possible go deep and stay there for like a really long period of time? Well, I mean, I think if you're looking up a library that's relevant to what you're doing, that's probably okay. And I don't know that I would count that as a full context shift because the semantic networks involved are relatively similar, right? You're, you're thinking about this type of solution. You're thinking about coding. You're thinking about this type of functions. Where you're really going to get hit is if you switch your context to something that's different and if there's unresolved obligation. So really the worst possible thing you could do would be to look at like an email inbox, mm-hmm. right? Because here's 20 emails. I can't answer most of these right now. They're completely different. Like the context of these emails, like, okay, there's a grant funding issue or something like this is very different than the coding I'm doing. And I'm leaving it unresolved. (laughs) So it's like someone needs something from me and I'm going to try to pull my attention back. The second worst would be something that's emotionally arousing. So if you're like, let me just glance over at Twitter. I'm sure it's nice and calm and peaceful over there, right? That could be devastating because you're going to expose yourself to something that's emotionally arousing. That's going to completely mess up the cognitive plateau there. And then when you come back to, okay, let me try to code again. It's really difficult. So there's both the information and the emotion. Yeah, both both can be killers if what you're trying to do. So I would recommend at least an hour at a time because it could take up to 20 minutes to completely clear out the residue from whatever it was you were thinking about before. So if you're coding for 30 minutes, you might only be getting 10 or 15 minutes of actual sort of peak lex going on there, right? So an hour, at least you get a good 40, 45 minutes plus. I'm, I'm partial to 90 minutes as a really good, a really good chunk. We can get a lot done. But just before you get exhausted, you can sort of pull back a little bit. Yeah, and uh, one of the beautiful, and you know, p- people can read about it in your uh, book, Deep Work, but, and I know this has been out for a long time and people are probably familiar with many of the concepts, but it's still pretty profound and it has stayed with me for a long time. Uh, so there's something about adding the terms to it yeah. that actually solidifies the concepts, like words matter, it's yeah. pretty cool. And uh, just for me, sort of as a comment, there's, uh, it's a struggle and it's very difficult to uh, maintain focus for a prolonged period of time. But the days on which I'm able to accomplish several hours of that kind of work, I'm happy. So forget being productive and all that. Yeah. I'm just satisfied with my life. I'm, I, feel, I feel fulfilled. It's like joyful. And then I, I can be, I'm less of a dick to other people in my life afterwards. <laughs> it's a it's a beautiful thing, and there there I I find the opposite when I don't do that kind of thing. I'm much more irritable. Like I feel like I didn't accomplish anything, and there's the stress that then the negative emotion builds up to where you're no longer able to sort of uh, enjoy the hell out of this amazing life. So, so in that sense, deep work has been a source of a lot of uh, happiness. I'd love to ask you, how do you? Again, you cover this in the book, but how do you integrate deep work into your life? What are different scheduling strategies that you would recommend just at a high level? Yeah. What are different ideas there? Well, I mean, I'm a big fan of time blocking, right? So if you're facing your workday, don't allow like your inbox or a to-do list to sort of drive you. Don't just come into your day and think, what do I want to do next? Yes. I mean, I'm a big plan of saying, here's the time, here's the time available. Let me make a plan for it. Right? So I have a meeting here, I have an appointment here, here's what's left, what do I actually want to do with it? So in this half hour, I'm going to work on this. For this 90 minute block, I'm going to work on that. And during this hour, I'm going to try to fit this in. And then actually I have this half hour gap between two meetings. So why don't I take advantage of that to go run five errands? And I can kind of batch those together. 
but blocking out in advance, this is what I want to do with the time available. I mean, I find that's much more effective. Now, once you're doing this, once you're in a discipline of time blocking, it's much easier to actually see this is where I want, for example, the deep work. And I can get a handle on the other things that need to happen and find better places to, to fit them so I can prioritize this. And you're going to get a lot more of that done than if it's just going through your day and saying, what's next? I schedule every single day kind of thing. So it's like try to in the morning to try to uh, have a plan. Yeah. So, you know, I do a quarterly, weekly, daily planning. So at the semester or quarterly level, I have a, a big picture vision for what I'm trying to get done, you know, during the fall, let's say, or during the winter. Like I want these are there's a deadline coming up for academic papers at the end of the season. Here's what I'm working on. I want to have this many chapters done of a book, something like this. Like you have the the big picture vision of of what you want to get done. Then weekly, you look at that and then you look at your week and you put together a plan for like, okay, what am I gonna What's my week going to look like? What do I need to do? How am I going to make progress on these things? Maybe maybe I need to do an hour every morning or I see that Monday is my only really empty day. So that's going to be the day that I really need to nail on writing or something like this. And then every day you look at your weekly plan and say, let me block off the actual hours. So you, you do that that three scales, the, the quarterly down to weekly down to daily. And we're talking about actual times of day versus, yeah. so the alternative is what I end up, doing a lot, and I'm not sure it's the best way to do it, is uh, uh, scheduling the duration of time. This is the, this is called the luxury when you don't have any meetings. I'm like, religiously don't do meetings. All, all <laughs> other academics are jealous of you, by the way. Yeah, I know. <laughs> no Zoom meetings. Uh, I, I find those are, that's one of the worst tragedies, uh, tragedies of the pandemic is both the opportunity to, what well, okay, the positive thing is to have more time with your family, you know, sort of reconnect in many ways, and that that's really interesting. Uh, be able to remotely sort of not waste time on travel and all those kinds of things. The negative is, <laughs> actually, both those things are also sources of the negative, uh, but the negative is like, it seems like people have multiplied the number of meetings because they're so easy to schedule, yeah. and there's nothing more draining to me intellectually, philosophically, just my spirit is destroyed by even a 10 minute Zoom meeting. Like, what are we doing here? What's the meaning of life? Come yeah, on. What is yeah this all I have about? I, every Zoom meeting is, I have an existential crisis. So Kierkegaard with a <laughs> internet connection. Uh, so uh, what the hell are we talking about? Oh, uh, so when you don't have meetings, there's a luxury to really allow for certain things if they need to, like the important things, like deep work sessions to last way longer than you uh, maybe planned for. I mean, that's my goal is to try to schedule, the goal is to schedule, to sit and focus for a particular task for an hour and hope I can keep going. Yeah. And hope I can get lost in it. Yeah. And uh, do, do you find that this is at all an okay way to go? And uh, the time blocking is just something you have to do to actually be an adult and operate in this real world? Or is there some magic to the time blocking? Well, I mean, uh, there's magic to the intention. Uh, there's magic to it if you have varied responsibilities, right? So I'm often juggling multiple jobs, essentially. There's there's academic stuff, there's teaching stuff, there's book stuff, there's the the business surrounding, you know, surrounding my my book stuff. But... I'm of your same mindset. If a deep work session is going well, yes, rock and roll. 
and let it let it go on. So like one of the, the big keys of time block, at least the way I do it. So I even, you know, sell this planner to help people time block. It has many columns because the discipline is, oh, if your initial schedule changes, you just move over one. Next time you get a chance, you move over one column and then you just fix it for the time that's remaining. So in other words, there's not ex- there's no bonus for I made a schedule and I stuck with it. Like there's actually, it's not like you get a prize for it, right? Yeah. Like for me, the prize is I have an intentional plan for my time. And if I have to change that plan, that's fine. Like the state I want to be is basically at any point in the day, I've thought about what time remains and and gave it some thought for what to do. Because I'll do the same thing, even though I have a lot more meetings and other types of things I have to do in my, in my various jobs. And I basically prioritize the deep work uh, and they get yelled at a lot. Yeah, so, so that's kind it. of my strategy is like, just be okay just be okay getting yelled at a lot because I feel you if you're rolling. Yeah. yeah. Well, that's, that's what it is for me. Like with writing, I think it's writing so hard in a certain way that it's, you don't really get on a roll in some sense. Like it's just difficult. Mm-hmm. Uh, but working on proofs, it's very hard to pull yourself away from a proof. If you start to get some traction, just you, you've been at it for a couple hours and you feel the, uh, the pins and tumbler starting to click together and progress is being made it's really hard to call, pull away from that. So, so I'm willing to get yelled at by almost everyone. Of course, there is also uh, a positive effect to uh, pulling yourself out of it when things are going great, because then you're kind of excited to resume. Yeah, as opposed to stopping on a on a dead end. That's true. That the, there's an the yeah there's a. Uh, there's an extra force of procrastination that comes with if you stop on a dead end to return to the task. Yeah, or a, or a cold start. Yeah. Like it, it, whenever I fit, like I'm in a stage now, I, I submitted a few papers recently. So now we're sort of starting know. something up from cold and it, it takes way too long to get going because it's very hard to, it's very hard to get the motivation to schedule a time when it's not, yeah, we're in it. Like yeah. here's where we are. We feel like something's about to give here when you're in the very early stages where it's just, I don't know. I'm going to read hard papers and it's going to be hard to understand them. And I'm going to have no idea how to make progress is not, it's not motivating. <laughs> what about deadlines? Can we, um, Okay, so this is like a therapy session. Uh, <laughs> is uh, why I, it seems like I don't I only get stuff done that has deadlines, and so the one of the implied powerful things about time blocking is there's a kind of deadline or there's a artificial or real sense of urgency. Do you think it's possible to get anything done in this world without deadlines? Why why do deadlines work so well? Well, it's I mean it's a clear motivational signal, but in the in the short term. You do get an effect like that in time blocking. I think the the strong effect you get by saying, this is the exact time I'm going to work on this, is that you don't have the debate with yourself every three minutes about, right. should I take a break now, right? Like This is the big issue with just saying, you know, I'm going to go write. I'm going to write for a while and that's it. Because your mind is saying, well, obviously we're going to take some breaks, right? We're not just going to write forever. And so why not right now? <laughs> you have to be like, well, not right now. Let's go a little bit longer, five minutes. Like, well, why don't we take a break now? Like, we should probably look at the internet. Now yeah. you have to constantly have this battle. On the other hand, if you're in a time block schedule, like I've got these two hours put aside for writing. That's what I'm supposed to be doing. I have a break scheduled over here. I don't have to fight with myself, right? And maybe at a larger scale, deadlines give you a, a, a similar sort of effect. Is I know this is what I'm supposed to be working on because it's uh, it's due. Perhaps, but what you're describing is a much healthier sort of uh, giving yourself over and you talk about this in in the new email book is the process. I mean, in general, you talk about it all over is, is creating a process and then giving yourself over to the process. The But then you have to be strict with yourself. Yeah. But what are the deadlines you're talking about? So like with papers, like what, what's the main type of deadline work? 
Uh, well, so papers definitely, but you know, publications like say this this podcast. Uh, I have to publish this podcast next early next week. One because your book is coming out. I'd love to sort of uh, support this amazing book, but uh, the other is I have to fly to Vegas on Thursday to run 40 miles with David Goggins. And so I want this podcast, that this conversation we're doing now to be out of my life. Yeah. Like I don't wanna be in a hotel in Vegas, yeah. like uh, editing the, like freaking out while David Goggins is yelling. On hour, on hour 43 yeah. of your, of your terrifying <laughs> exactly. thing that you're doing. But actually it's possible that yeah. I still uh, will be doing that, you know, because it's that's not a hard, that's a softer deadline, right? But those are sort of, the life imposes these kinds of deadlines. Yeah. Um, I'm not, so yeah, papers are nice because there's an actual deadline. Yeah. Uh, but I am almost referring to like the pressure that people put on you. Hey man, you said you're going to get this done two months ago. Why yeah. haven't you gotten it done? I don't see, I don't like that pressure. Yeah. So maybe we, now, first of all, I think we can, all, I hate it too. We, we can agree by the way, having David Goggins yell at you is probably the a top productivity technique. <laughs> we would all yeah. get, I think we'd all get a lot more done if, yeah. if he was yelling. Uh, but see, I don't like that. So I, I will try to get things done early. I like I like having flex. I also don't like the idea of this has to get done today, right? Like it's due at midnight and we've got a lot to do as the night before because then I get in my head about, well, what if I get sick? Yeah. Or like, what if, uh, you know, what if I, I don't I get a bad night's sleep and I can't think clearly? So I like to have the flex. So I'm all process. And that's like the philosophical aspect of that book, Deep Work, is that there's something very human and deep about just wrangling with the world of ideas. I mean, Aristotle talked about this. If you go back and, and read the ethics, he, he, he's trying to understand the meaning of life. And he, he eventually ends up ultimately at the human capacity to contemplate deeply. Uh, yeah. It's kind of like a teleological argument. It's the things that only humans can do, and therefore it must be somehow connected to our ends. And he said, ultimately, that's where, that's where he found his meaning. But you know, he's touching on some sort of intimation there that's correct. That, and so what I try to build my life around is regularly thinking hard about stuff that's interesting. Just like if you get a fitness habit going, it, you feel off when you don't do it. Yeah. I try to get that cognitive habit. So it's like, I got it. I, got, I mean, look, I have my bag here somewhere. I have my notebook in it because I was thinking on the Uber ride over, I was like, you know, I could get some, I'm working on this new proof and it just, so you train yourself, you train yourself to appreciate certain things. And then over time, the hope is that it accretes. Well, let's talk about some demons because I wonder, okay, there's like deep work, which, uh, and uh, the the world without email books that to me symbolize the life I, I want to live, okay? And then there is, I'm like, despite appearances, an adult at this point, and this is the life I actually live. And I, it's, I'm in constant chaos. You said you don't like that anxiety. I hate it too, but it seems like, I'm always in it. It's a giant mess. It's it's like it, it it's almost like whenever I establish whenever I have successful processes for doing deep work, I'll add stuff on top of it just to introduce the chaos. Yeah. And and like I don't want to. Yeah. But you know, it's so, so you have to look in the mirror at a certain point and you have to say, like, who the hell am I? Like I keep doing this. Is this something that's fundamental to who I am or do I really need to fix this? What's the chaos right now? Like I've seen your video about like your routine. It seemed very structured and deep. In fact, yeah. I was really envious of it. So like what's the chaos now that's not in that video? 
many of those sessions go way longer. I don't get enough sleep. Yeah. And then I the, the main introduction of chaos is it's taking on too many things on the to-do list. I see. It's, I mean, I suppose it's a problem that everybody deals with, which is saying, not saying no. But it's not like I have a trouble saying no. It's that there's so much cool shit in my life. Yeah. Okay, listen, I've there's nothing I love more in this world than the Boston Dynamics robots. Spot okay, and, spot. The, and the other, yeah. And they're giving me spot. So there's an, to do, what am I gonna say, no? Yeah. So they're giving me spot and I wanna do some computer vision stuff for, for the hell of it. Okay, so that's now a to-do item. Yep. And then you go to Texas for a while. And there's Texas. And, and, and everything's happening. There's all the interesting people down there. And, and then there's surprises, right? There yeah. are power outage in, in Texas. There's constant changes to plans and yeah. all those kinds of things. And you sleep less. And then there's personal stuff, like just, you know, people in your life, sources of stress, all those kinds of things. And But it does feel like if I'm just being introspective that I bring it onto myself. I suppose a lot of people do this kind of thing. Yeah. Is, is they they flourish under pressure? Yeah, and I wonder if that um, if that's just a hack I've developed as a habit early on in life that needs you need to let go of. You need to yeah. fix. But it's all interesting things. Yeah, yeah, that's interesting. that's that's interesting. Yeah, because these these are all interesting things. Well, one of the things you talked about in, in deep work, which is like really important, is like having an end to the day. Yeah, like putting it down. Yeah. Like that, I don't think I've ever done that in my life. Yeah. Well, see, I started doing that early because uh, I got married early. So, you know, I didn't have a real job. I was a grad student, but my wife had a real job. And so I just figured I should do my work when she's at work because, you know, hey, when, when, when work's over, she'll be home. And I don't want to, I don't want to be, you know, at, at, on campus or whatever. And so real early on, I just got in that habit of this is when, you know, this is when you end work. And then when I was a postdoc, which is kind of an easy job, right? Um, I put artificial, I was like, I want to train. <laughs> I was like, when I'm a professor, it's going to be busier because there's uh, demands that professors have beyond research. And so as a postdoc, I added artificial, large time-consuming things into the middle of my day. I'd, I'd basically exercise for two hours in the middle of the day and, and do all this, this productive meditation and stuff like this while still maintaining the nine to five. So it's like, okay, wow. I want to get really good at uh, putting artificial constraints on so that I stay, I didn't want to get uh, flabby when my job was easy. So that when I became a professor and now all of that's paying off because I have a ton of kids. Yeah. So, so now I don't really have a choice. Uh, that's what's probably keeping me away from cool things is I just don't have time to do them. And then after a while people, you know, stop bothering. <laughs> well, but that, you know, but that's how you have a successful life. Otherwise you're going to, it's too easy to then go into the full Hunter S Thompson. Yeah. Like to where no, nobody, wants nobody functional wants to be in your vicinity <laughs> like you're driving you attract the people that have a similar behavior pattern as you yeah so if you if you live in chaos you're going to attract chaotic people and then then and it becomes like this uh self-fulfilling uh, prophecy yeah and it feels like i'm not bothered by it but i guess this is all coming around to exactly what you're saying which is like I think one of the big hacks for productive people that I've met is to get married <laughs> and yeah. have kids. Yeah. Honestly, it's, it's it's very perhaps counterintuitive. Yeah, but it gets it's like the ultimate timetable enforcer. Yeah, it enforces a lot of timetables. Uh, though it has a huge kids have a huge productivity hit. Though so you got to weigh it. But here, okay, here's the complicated thing though. 
Like you could think about in your own life, starting the podcast as one of these just cool opportunities that you put on yourself, right? Yeah. Like, you know, I could have been talking to you at MIT four years ago yeah. and be like, don't do that. Like yeah. your research is going well, right? Yeah. But then everyone who watches you is like, okay, this podcast is the direction that's taking you is like a couple of years from now, it's going to, there'll be something really monumental that you're probably going to probably lead to, right? There'll be some really, it just feels like your life is going somewhere. It's going somewhere. Really it's cool. interesting. Yeah. Unexpected. Yeah. Yeah. So how do you balance those two things? And so what I try to throw at it is this, this motto of do less, do better, know why, right? So do, oh, do less, do better, know why. It used to be the motto of my website years ago. Um, so do a few things, but like an interesting array, right? So I was doing, uh, MIT stuff, but I was also writing, you know, so a couple of things are, you know, they were interesting, like ha have a couple bets placed on a, on a couple different numbers on the roulette table, but not too many things. And then really try to do those things really well and, and see where it goes. Like with my writing, I just spent years and years and years just training. I was like, I want to be a better writer. I want to be a better writer. I started writing student books when I was a student. Uh, I really wanted to write hardcover idea books. I started training. I would... I would use like New Yorker articles to train myself. I'd break them down and then I'd get commissions with much smaller magazines and practice the skills. And, and it took forever until, you know, but now today, like I actually get a write for the New Yorker, but it took like a decade. So a small number of things, try to do them really well. And then the know why is have a connection to some sort of value. Like in general, I think this is worth doing uh, and then seeing where it leads. And so uh, the choice of the few things is grounded in what, like a little... Like a like a little flame of passion, like a love for the thing, like a sense that you say you wanted to write, get good at writing. You had that kind of introspective moment of thinking, this actually brings me a lot of joy and fulfillment. Yeah, I mean, it gets complicated because I wrote a whole book about following your passion being bad advice, which is like the first thing I kind of got infamous for. <laughs> I wrote that back in 2012. Yeah. But But the argument there is like passion cultivates, right? So what I was pushing back on was the myth that the passion for what you do exists full intensity before you start, and then that's what propels you. Or actually the reality is as you get better at something, as you gain more autonomy, more skill, and more impact, the passion grows along with it. So that when people look back later and say, oh, follow your passion, what they really mean is I'm very passionate about what I do, and that's a worthy goal. Mm -hmm. But how you actually cultivate that is much more complicated than just introspection is going to identify like for sure you should be a writer or something so, like this. So I was actually quoting you. I was uh, on a social network last night uh, in a Clubhouse. Yeah. I don't know if you've heard of it. I was uh, wait. Uh, I have to I have to ask you about this uh, because I've, I was invited. I'm invited to do a Clubhouse. I don't know what that means. <laughs> a, a tech reporter has invited me to do a Clubhouse about my new book. Uh, that's awesome. Uh, well, let me know when because I'll show up if what, you have. But well, what is it? Okay. So first of all, let me just mention that I okay. was in a Clubhouse. Uh, room last night and I kept plugging your exactly what exactly what you said about uh, passion. So we'll talk about it. it. It was a room that was focused on burnout. Okay. Uh, but first Clubhouse is a kind of fascinating place in terms of like, your mind would be very interesting to analyze this place because, you know, we, we talk about email, we talk about social networks, but Clubhouse is something very different. And I've encountered it in other places, Discord and so on that's voice only communication. Okay. So it's a bunch of people in a room, they're just their eyes closed. All you hear is their voices. The real time. Real time, yeah. live. It only happens live. You're technically not allowed to record, but some people still do. And you know, especially when it's big, big conversations. But the whole point is it's they're live. And there's different structures. Like on Discord, 
it was so fascinating. I have this Discord server that would have hundreds of people in a room together, right? We're all just little icons that can mute and unmute our mics. Okay. And so you're sitting there, not so it's, it's just voices, and you're able with hundreds of people to not interrupt each other. First of all, like huh. as a dynamic system, yeah. like- You see icons, just like mics muted or not muted, basically. Yeah, well, so everyone's yeah. muted yeah. and they unmute and they start, it starts flashing. Yeah. And Oh, so you're like, okay, let me uh, get precedence. Yeah. So it, it's the digital equivalent of when you're in a conversation, like at a faculty meeting, and you sort of uh, like kind of make some noises like yeah. while the other person's finishing. And it, so people realize like, okay, this person wants to talk next, but now it's purely digital. You see a flashing- but in a yeah. faculty meeting, which is very interesting, like even as we're talking now, there's a visual element that seems to increase the probability of interruption. Yeah. When it's just darkness, you actually listen better and oh, you don't interrupt. So like if you create a culture, there's there's always gonna be assholes, yeah. but they're, they're actually exceptions. Everybody adjusts, they kind of evolve to the, the beat of the room. Okay, that's one fascinating aspect. It's like, okay, that's weird. Because it's different than like a Zoom call where there's video. Yeah. Uh, it's just audio. You think video adds, but it actually seems like it subtracts. The second aspect of it that's fascinating is when it's no video, just audio, there's an intimacy. It's, feel, it's weird. Because with strangers, it you you connect in a in a much more real way. It's very it's similar to podcasts. Yeah, but with a lot of people, with a lot of people yeah. and new people, huh. and then you and, and they they bring okay. First of all, different voices like low voices and like high voices, and and it's it's, it's more difficult to judge in Discord. You couldn't even see uh, the people. It, it was a culture where you do funny profile pictures as opposed to your actual face. Yeah. In Clubhouse, it's your actual face. So you can tell like as an older person, younger person, in Discord, you couldn't, you just have to judge based on the voice. But there's a, there's something about the listening and the intimacy of being surprised by different strangers that feels almost like a, a party with friends and friends of friends you haven't met yet, but you really like. Now, Clubhouse also has an interesting innovation where there's a large crowd that just listens and there's a stage and you can bring people up onto stage. So See. only people on stage are talking and you can have like five, six, seven, eight, sometimes 20, 30 people on stage. And yeah. then you can also have thousands of people just listening. I see. So there's a, I don't know, huh. a lot of people are being surprised by this. Why now, is it called a social network? It seems like it doesn't know. have, there's not social links, there's not a, a, a feed that's trying to harvest attention. It feels like a communication. Uh, so the, the social uh, network aspect is you follow people. Yeah. And the people you follow, now this is like the first social network that's actually correct use of follow, I think. You're more likely to see the rooms they're in. So there's a, your feed is a bunch of rooms that are going on right now. Okay. And the people you follow, are the ones that will increase the likelihood that you'll see the room they're in. And so the final result is like, there's a list of really interesting rooms. Like um, I have all these, I've been speaking Russian quite a bit, there's practicing, uh, but also just like talking politics and philosophy in Russian. I've never done that before, but it allows me to connect with that community. Huh. And then uh, there's a community of people, like, it's, it's funny, but like I'll go in a community of all African-American people talking about race 
and I'll be welcomed. Yeah. I've never had, like I've yeah. literally never been in a difficult conversation about race, like with people from all over the place. It's like fascinating. And then I, musicians, jazz musicians. I don't know, you could say that a lot of other places could have created that culture. I suppose uh, Twitter and Facebook allow for that culture, but there's something about this network as it stands now, because no Android users. <laughs> It's probably just because it's iPhone people. Yeah. Uh, it's there, it's less like, conspiratorial or something. <laughs> well, like less, listen, I'm an Android person. So I, I got an iPhone just for this network, yeah. which is funny. Yeah. Uh, is it, For now, it's all like, there's very few trolls. Yeah. There's very few people that are trying to manipulate the system and so on. So I don't know, it's, it's interesting. Now the downside, the reason you're going to hate it is because it's so intimate, because it pulls you in, and pulls in very successful people like yeah. you, just every like really successful, productive, very busy people. Uh, it it it's a huge time sink. It's very difficult to pull yourself out. Interesting. You mean once you're in a room? Well, no. The, uh, leaving the room is actually easy. The beautiful thing about a stage with multiple people, there's actually a literal button that says "leave quietly." Okay. So culture, uh, no etiquette wise, it's okay to just leave. So you and I in a room, when it's just you and I, it's a little awkward to leave. If you're asking questions and I'm just yeah, gone. <laughs> yeah, but, and actually if you're being interviewed for the book, that's weird because you're now in the event course, and yeah. you're supposed to, but usually the person interviewing would be like, okay, it's time for you to go. It's more normal. But the the normal way to use the room, it's like, you're just opening the app and there'll be like, I don't know, Sam Harris, uh, Eric, Weinstein, um, I think Joe Rogan showed up to the app, Bill Gates, I mean, these people on stage just like randomly just plugged in and then you'll step up on stage, listen, maybe you won't contribute at all. Maybe you'll say something funny yeah. and then you'll just leave. Yeah. And there's uh, the, the addicting aspect to it. The reason it's a time sink is you don't wanna leave. What I've noticed about exceptionally busy people Yeah. That they love this. This the there. I think might have to do with the pandemic. It might be a little a, bit. Yeah. There's a loneliness. Yeah, they're all starved. Yeah. But also, it's really cool people. Yeah. Like when was when was the last time you talked to Sam Harris or whoever? Like think of anybody. Uh, Tyler Co Like any any, yeah. any faculty. This is like what universities strive to create, but it's taken. Because you don't years have to of cultural evolution to try to get a lot of interesting smart people together that run into each other. Well, yeah. well you have really strong faculty in a room together with yeah. no scheduling. This is the power of it. Yeah. It's like, you just show up, there's no none of that baggage of scheduling and so on, and there's no pressure to leave. Uh, sorry, no pressure to stay. It's very easy for you to leave. You realize that there's a lot of constraints on meetings and like faculty, there's the, uh, like even stopping by, you know, before the pandemic, a friend or faculty or colleague and so on, you know, there's a weirdness about leaving. Yeah. Uh, but here, there's not a weirdness about leaving. So they've discovered something interesting. The but the final result, when you observe it, is uh, it's very fulfilling. I think it's very beneficial, but it's very addicting. So you have to make sure you moderate. Yeah, that's interesting. And okay, well, so maybe I'll try it. I mean, look, there's no the things that make me suspicious about other platforms aren't here. So the feed is not full of user-generated content that is going through some sort of algorithmic rating process with all the weird incentives and nudging that does. Uh, and you're you're not producing content that's being harvested 
to be monetized by another company. I mean, it, it seems like it's more uh, ephemeral, right? You're, you're here, you're talking. The feed is just actually just showing you here's interesting things happening, right? You're not jockeying in the feed for, look, I'm being clever or something and I'm going to get a like count that goes up and that's going to influence. And right. and there's more friction. There's more cognitive friction, I guess, involved in listening to smart people versus uh, scrolling through. Yeah, there's something there. So there's no... Why are people so... I, I see a lot of... I have a, there's all these articles that seem... I haven't really read them, but it seemed, why, are, why are reporters negative about this? Competition. The New York Times wrote this article called Unfettered Conversations Happening on Clubhouse. Yeah. Is, uh, so be- I'm right in picking up a tone, from, even from the headlines, that there's some like negative vibes from the press. No, this. so I can say, let's say, well, I'll tell you what the article was saying, which is uh, they're having cancelable conversations like yeah. the biggest people in the world almost trolling the press right and the press is desperate well, like channing the press yeah like we're gonna, the <laughs> press but by saying that you just you guys are looking oh, for clickbait from our genuine human conversations and so, so the i think the honestly the press is just like what do we do with this we can't yeah um first of all it's a lot of work for that okay uh it's what naval says which is like this is skipping the journalist. Like the interview you, uh, if you go on Clubhouse, the interview you might do for the book would be with somebody who's like a journalist and interviewing you. Yeah, that That's more a traditional. Yeah. It'd be a good introduction for you to try it. But the like the way to use Clubhouse is you just show up and it's like, Again, like me, I'm sorry, I'm like blame. <laughs> I can't. I keep mentioning Sam Harris as if it's like the only person I know. But like a lot of these uh, major faculty, I don't know Max Tegmark, like yeah. just just yeah. major faculty, just sitting there, and then you show up, and then uh, I'll ask like, oh, don't you have a book coming out or something? And then you'll talk about the book, and then you'll leave five minutes later because you have to go get coffee and go to the Interesting. bathroom. Interesting. Okay. So like that's the yeah. It's not the journalistic. You're not gonna actually enjoy the. The interview as much because it'll be like the normal thing yeah like you're there for 40 minutes or an hour and there'll be questions from the audience right like i'm doing an event next week for the book launch where it's like jason freed and i are talking about email yeah. but it's using some more there'll be like a thousand people who are there to watch virtually but it's using some sort of traditional webinar clubhouse would be a situation where that could just happen informally like i jump in like jason's there and then someone else jumps in and and yeah that's interesting but for now it's still closed so even though there's a lot of excitement and there'll be quite famous people just sitting there listening to you yeah but the numbers aren't exactly high so you're talking about rooms like even the huge rooms are like just a few thousand right and this is this is probably like soho in the 50s or something too just because of the exponential growth give it seven more months and if you let one invite begets two invites begets four invites begin pretty soon it'll be everyone and then the rooms in your feed are going to be whatever uh marketing performance enhancing drugs or something like that. exactly <laughs> yeah but then and, and a bunch of competitors there's already like 30 plus competitors yeah. sprung up twitter spaces so twitter yeah. is creating a competitor yeah. that's going to likely destroy clubhouse yeah because they just have a much larger user base and, and they already have a social network so yeah, interesting. I, I, right. I i i would be very cautious of course yeah. with the addictive element but it doesn't just like you said this particular implementation in its early stages doesn't have the like yeah the uh, well, it doesn't have the context switching problem. Yeah, It'll, you'll just switch to it, and you you'll be a, stuck. Yeah, to keep a context is great. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and, and but then I think the best way I've found to use it is uh, 
to acknowledge that these things pull you in. Yeah. So I've used it in the past, uh, like almost, you know, I'll go get a coffee and I'll tune into a conversation as if the, that's how I use podcasts sometimes. I'll just like play a little bit of a podcast uh, and then, you know, I can just turn it off. The problem with these is it pulls you in. It's really interesting. And then the other problem that you'll experience is like somebody will recognize you yeah. and then they'll be like, oh, Lex, come on up. Uh, come on. <laughs> oh, hey, I had a question for you. And then it takes a lot for you to go like to, to ignore that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. And then you pulled in and it's fascinating and it's really cool people. So it's like a source yeah. of a lot of joy, but it uh, is, you have to be very, very, very careful. The reason I brought it up is we, uh, there's a room, there's an entire club actually on burnout. And I brought you up and I brought David Goggins as the process I go through, which is, you know, my passion goes up and down, it dips. And I don't think I trust my own mind to, to tell me whether I'm getting close to burnout or exhaustion or not. I kind of go with the David Goggins model of, I mean, he's probably more applying it to running, but uh, when it feels like your mind can't take any more, that you're just 40% uh, at your capacity. Yeah. I mean, it's just like an arbitrary right. level. It's the Navy SEAL thing, right? The Navy SEAL thing. Yeah. I mean, you could put that at any percent, but it is remarkable that if you just take it one step at a time, just keep going, it's, it's uh, similar to this idea of a process. If you just trust the process and you just keep following, even if the passion goes up and down and so on, then ultimately, if you look in aggregate, uh, the passion will increase. Yeah. Your self-satisfaction will increase. Yeah, I think, and if you have two things, this has been a big strategy of mine, so that you can, what you hope for is off phase, mm -hmm. off phase alignment. Like that, it sometimes is in phase and that's a problem. Uh, but off-phase alignment's good. So, okay, my research, I'm struggling, uh, but my book stuff is going well, right? And so when you when you add those two waves together, like, oh, we're doing pretty well. And then uh, in other periods, like on oh, my writing, you know, I feel like I'm just not getting anywhere, but oh, I've had some good papers, I'm feeling good yeah. over there. So having two things that, that can counteract each other. Now, sometimes they fall into sync and then it gets rough. Then when, <laughs> you know, when everything, because everything for me is cyclical, you know, good periods, bad periods with all this stuff. So, uh typically they don't coincide so it helps compensate when they do coincide it, you get really high highs like where everything's clicking and then you get these really low lows where like your research is not working your program's not clicking you feel like you're nowhere with your writing uh and then it's a little rougher is do you do you think about the concept of burnout because i so i personally have never experienced burnout in the way that folks talk about which is like it's not just the up and down it's like you don't want to do anything ever again. Yeah. It like it's, it's, it's for some people, it's like physical, like to the hospital kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. So I do worry about it. So when I used to do student writing, like writing about students or student advice, there's, it came up a lot with students at elite schools. And I used to call it deep procrastination, but it's a real, really vivid, very replicatable syndrome where they stop being able to do schoolwork. Yeah. Like this is due. And the professor gives you an extension and the professor gives you an incomplete and says, you got, you, you, you we're going to fail the course. You have to hand this in and they can't do it. Right. It's like a, it's a, a complete stop on the ability to actually do work. Mm -hmm. And so I used to counsel students who had that issue. And often it was a combination of, at least is my best analysis is you, you have just the, the physical and cognitive difficulties of you know, they're usually under a very hard load, right? They're doing too many majors, too many extracurriculars, just, you know, really pushing themselves and the motivation 
is not sufficiently intrinsic. Right. So if you have a motivational center that's not completely on board, so a lot of these kids, like when I'm dealing with MIT kids, they would be, you know, their whole town was shooting off fireworks that they got in. They're everyone's hope that they were going there. Uh, and that they're in three majors, they don't want to let people down, but they're not really interested in being a doctor or whatever. So your your motivation's not in the right place. The motivational psychologist would say the locus of control was more towards the extrinsic end of the spectrum. And you have hardship. Right. And you could just fritz out the whole system. And so I, I would always be very worried about that. So I think about that a lot. I do a lot of multi-phase or multi-scale seasonality. So I'll go hard on something for a while and then for a few weeks go easy. I'll have semesters that are hard and semesters that are easy, or I'll take the summer really low. So on multiple scales and in the day, I'll go really hard on something, but then have a hard cut off at five. So like every scale, it's all about rest and recovery mm-hmm. because I really want to avoid that. And I do burn out. I, I burnt out pretty recently. I get minor burnt outs. Like I had a paper, a couple papers that I was trying to work through for a deadline a few weeks ago. And I wasn't sleeping well, and and um, there's some other things going on, and it just it knocks it out of me. I get sick usually is how I know I've pushed myself too far. Yeah, and so I kind of pulled it back. Now I'm doing this book launch. Then after this book launch, I'm pulling it back again. So I like I seasonality for rest and recovery. I think it's crucial, and at every scale, daily, monthly, you know, and then at the annual scale, like an easy summer, for example, I think is like a great idea if that's possible. Okay. <laughs> You just made me realize that that's exactly what I do. Because I I feel like I'm not even close to burnout or anything, even though I, I'm in chaos. Yeah. I feel the right exact ways of seasonality is the, not, not even the seasonality, but like you always have multiple seasons operating. It's like you said, like, because when you have a lot of cool shit going on, yeah. you there's always at least one thing that's a source of joy uh, that, there, there's always a reason. I suppose the fundamental thing, and I've known people that suffer from depression too, the fundamental problem with the, like the experience of depression and burnout is like, why do, like life is meaningless. Yeah. And I always have an answer of like, why? Why today could be cool. Yeah. And, and, yeah. You, have, and you have to contrive it, right? If you don't yeah. have it, you have to contrive it. Yeah. yeah. I think it's really important. Like, okay, well, this is going bad. So now is the time to start thinking about I mean, look, I started a podcast during the pandemic. <laughs> it's like, this is going pretty bad, but you know what? This could be something really interesting. Deep questions with Kyle Newport. Uh, <laughs> and I do it all in that voice. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I love the podcast, by the way. But uh, yeah, the, I think David Foster Wallace said, uh, the key to life is to be unborable. Uh, I've always kind of taken that to heart, which is like, you should be able to maybe artificially generate anything like uh find something in your environment in your surroundings that's a source of joy like everything is fun yeah like, <laughs> did you read the pale king it goes deep on boredom it means it's like uncomfortable it's like an uncomfortable meditation on boredom like he, the characters in that are just driven to the like extremes of i just bought three books on boredom the other day uh so now i'm really interested in this topic because i, I was anxious about my book launch happening this week. So I was like, okay, I need something else. To, so I have this idea for, a, I might do it as an article first, but as a book, like, okay, I need something cool to be thinking about because I was worried about like, I don't know, if the, oh, yeah. is the launch going to work, the pandemic, what's going to happen? I don't know if it's going to get to that. So I, this is exactly what we're talking about. So I went out and I bought a bunch of books and I'm beginning like a whole uh, sort of intellectual exploration. Well, I think that's one of the profound ideas in deep work that you don't expand on uh, too much is uh, boredom. Yeah. Well, so 
Deepwork had a, a superficial idea about boredom, which which was I had this chapter called "Embrace Boredom," and a very functionalist idea was basically you have to have some boredom in your regular schedule, or your mind is going to form a Pavlovian connection between as soon as I feel boredom, I get stimuli. And once it forms that connection, it's never going to tolerate deep work. So there's this very pragmatic treatment of boredom of your mind better be used to the idea that sometimes you don't get stimuli because otherwise you can't write for three hours. Mm -hmm. Like it's it's just not going to tolerate it. But more, more recently, what I'm really interested in boredom is it as a fundamental human drive, right? Because it's incredibly uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. And think about the other things that are incredibly uncomfortable, like hunger or thirst. They serve a really important purpose for our species, right? Like if, if something is really distressing, there's a reason. Pain is really uncomfortable because we need to worry about getting injured. Thirst is really uncomfortable because we need water to survive. So what's boredom? Why is that uncomfortable? And and I've been interested in this notion that boredom is about driving us towards productive action. Like as a species, I mean, think about it. Like what what got us to actually take advantage of these brains? What got us to actually work with fire? What got us to start shaping stones and the hand axes and figuring out if we could actually sharpen a stick sharp enough that we could throw it as a melee weapon or a, a distance weapon for hunting mammoth, right? Boredom drives us towards action. Mm-hmm. So now I'm fascinated by this fundamental action instinct uh, because I have this theory that I'm working on that we're out of sync with it. Just like we got, we have this drive for hunger, but then we introduced junk food and got out of sync with hunger and, and it makes us really unhealthy. We have this drive towards action, but then we we overload ourselves and we have all of these distractions. And then that causes, uh, it's like a cognitive action obesity type things mm-hmm. because it short circuits the system that wants us to do things, but we put more things in our plate than we can possibly do. And then we're really frustrated. We can't do them and we're, we're short circuiting all of our wires. So it all comes back to this question, well, what would be the ideal, the ideal sort of amount of stuff to do and type of things to do. Mm-hmm. Like if we wanted to look back at our ancestral environment and say, if I could just build from scratch, what type, how much work I do and what I work on to be as in touch with that as like paleo people are trying to get their diets in touch with that. And so now I'm just, but see, this is, I'm just, it's something I made up, Yeah. but now I'm going deep on it. And one of my podcast listeners, I was, I was talking about it on the show and I was like, well, I, I get trying to learn about animals and boredom. And she sent me this cool article from <laughs> a, an animal behaviorist journal about what we know about human boredom versus animal boredom. So trying to figure out that puzzle is uh, the wave that's high so I can get through the wave that's low of like, I don't know about this pandemic book launch and, you know, yeah. <laughs> and, and my research, I'm, my research is stumbling a little bit because of the pandemic. And so I needed a nice, you know, high. So there we go. There's a case study. Well, the, it's both a case study and a very interesting set of concepts because I didn't even realize that it's so simple. I'm one of the people that... Uh, has a interesting push and pull dynamic with hunger, trying to understand the hunger with myself. Like I probably have an unhealthy relationship with food. I don't know, but there's probably a perfect, that's a nice way to think about diet as action. There's probably an optimal diet response to the, the experience that our body's telling us, the signal that our body's sending, which is hunger. And in that same way, boredom is sending a signal and most of our intellectual activities in this world our creative activities are essentially a response uh to that signal yeah and and think about this analogy that we have this hunger instinct that junk food short circuits yes right it's like oh we'll we'll satisfy that hyper palatably and it doesn't end up well now think about 
modern attention engineered digitally mediated entertainment we have this boredom instinct oh we can we can take care of that with a hyper palatable alternative is that going to lead to a similar problem so i've been fasting a lot lately like uh i'm doing um eating once a day i've been doing that for over a month just eating one meal a day and primarily meat but it's very uh fasting has been incredible for me for focus, for well-being, for feel, I don't, I don't know, just for feeling good. Okay, we'll put on a chart what makes me feel good, and uh, that fasting and eating primarily a meat-based diet makes me feel really good. Hmm. And so, but that ultimately, what fasting did, I haven't fasted super long yet, like a seven-day diet, which I really like to do, but even just fasting for a day for twenty-four hours gets you in touch with your with the signal, it's fascinating. Like you get to listen to your, learn to listen to your body that like, you know, it's okay to be hungry. It's like a little signal that sends you stuff. And then, and then uh, I get to listen to how it responds when I put food in my body. Like, and I get to like, okay, cool. So like food is a thing that pacifies the signal. Like it sounds ridiculous, okay? You could do that with- And do different types of food it feels different. So you it learn about what different. your body yeah. wants. For some reason, fasting, it's similar to the deep work, embrace boredom. Fasting allowed me to go into mode of listening, of trying to understand the signal that I could say, I have an unhealthy appreciation of fruit, okay? I love apples and cherries. Like, I don't know how to moderate them. So if you take just same amount of calories, I don't know, calories matter, but they say calories, 2000 calories of cherries, versus 2,000 calories of steak. If I eat 2,000 calories of steak, maybe with just a little bit of like green beans or cauliflower, I'm going to feel really good, fulfilled, focused, and happy. Yeah. If I eat cherries, I'm going to be, I'm gonna wake up behind a dumpster crying with like naked and like it's just- Pits all around. Yeah, with, with everything. <laughs> face, yeah. And just like bloated, just not, and unhappy. And also the the mood swings up and down. I don't know. Uh, and I'll be much hungrier the next day. Uh, sometimes it takes a couple of days, but yeah. when I introduce carbs into the system, too many carbs, I it starts, it's just unhealthy. It's a, it, I go into this roller coaster as opposed to a calm boat ride along the river in the Amazon or something like that. Yeah. And so fasting was the mechanism of for me to start listening to the body. I wonder if you can do that same kind of, I guess that's what meditation a little bit is. A little bit, but yeah, listen to boredom. But so two years ago, I had a book out called Digital Minimalism. And one of the things I was recommending that people do is basically a 30-day fast. But from digital personal entertainment, social media, online videos, anything that captures uh, your attention and dispels boredom. And people were thinking like, oh, this is a detox. Like, I just want to teach your body not to need the distraction or this or that. But it really wasn't what I was interested in. I I wanted there to be space that you could listen to your boredom. Like, okay, I can't just dispel it. I can't just look at the screen and revel in it a little bit and start to listen to it and say, what is this really pushing me towards. Mm-hmm. And you take the new stuff, the new technology off the table and sort of ask, what is this? What am I craving? Like, what's the activity equivalent of 2000 calories of meat with a little bit of green beans on the side? And I had 1700 people go through this experiment, like spend 30 days doing this. And it's hard at first, but then they get used to 
listening to themselves and sort of seeking out what is this really pushing me towards? And it was pushing people towards connection. It was pushing people towards, I just want to go be around other people. It was pushing people towards high quality leisure activities. Like I want to go do something that's complicated. And it took weeks sometimes for them to get in touch with their boredom, but then it completely rewired how they thought about what do I want to do with my time outside of work? And then the idea is when you're done with that, then it was much easier to go back and completely change your digital life because you have alternatives, right? You're not just trying to abstain from things you don't like, but that's basically a listening to boredom experiment. Like just be there with the boredom and see where it drives you when you don't have, you know, the digital Cheez-Its. Okay. So if I can't do that, where is it going to drive me? Well, I guess I kind of want to go to the library, mm-hmm. which came up a lot, by the way, a lot of people rediscovered the library, you know, with physical books, physical books. So like you can just go borrow them and like it, there's like low pressure and you can explore and you bring them home and then you read them and you can like sit by the window and read them and it's nice weather outside and i used to do that 20 years ago they're listening to boredom so can you maybe elaborate a little bit on the different experiences that people had when they quit social media for 30 days like is that if you were to recommend that process what is ultimately the goal yeah digital minimalism that's that's my philosophy for all this tech um, and it's working backwards from what's important. So it's, you figure out what you're actually all about, like what you want to do, what you want to spend your time doing. And then you can ask, okay, is there a place that tech could amplify or support some of these things? And that's how you decide what tech to use. And so the the process is let's actually get away from everything. Let's be bored for a while. Let's, let's really spend a month getting, really figuring out what do I actually want to do? What do I want to spend my time doing? What's important to me, you know? what makes me feel good. And then when you're done, you can bring back in tech very strategically to help those things, right? And that was the goal. That turns out to be much more successful than when people take a abstention only approach. So if you come at your tech life and say, you know, whatever, I look at Instagram too much. Like, mm-hmm. I don't like how much I'm on Instagram. That's a bad thing. I want to reduce this bad thing. So, so here's my new thing. I'm going to spend less time looking at Instagram, much less likely to succeed in the long term. So we're much less likely at trying to reduce this sort of amorphous negative because, you know, in the moment, you're like, yeah, but it's not that bad. It would be kind of interesting to look at it now. When you're instead controlling behavior because you have a positive that you're aiming towards, it's very powerful for people. Like, I want my life to be like this. Here's the role that tech plays in that life. The connection to wanting your life to be like that is very, very strong. And then it's much, much easier to say, yeah, like using Instagram is not part of my plan for how I have that life. And I really want to have that life. So of course, I'm not going to use Instagram. So it turns out to be a much more sustainable way to tame what's going on. So if you quit social media for 30 days, you kind of have to do the work. You have to do the work. Of thinking like, what am I actually, what makes me happy in terms of uh, these tools that I've previously used? And when you try to integrate them back, how can I integrate them to maximize the thing that actually makes me happy? Yeah, or what makes me happy unrelated to technology? Like, what do I actually, what do I want my life to be like? Well, maybe what I want to do is be, you know, outside of nature two hours a day and spend a lot more time, like, helping my community and sacrificing on behalf of my connections and then have some sort of intellectually engaging leisure activity, like I'm reading or trying to read the great books and having more calm and seeing the sunset. Like, you, you, you create this picture. And then you go back and say, well, I still need my Facebook group because that's how I, I keep up with my cycling group. But Twitter is just, you know, toxic. It's not helping any of these things. And, well, I'm an artist, so... I kind of need Instagram to get inspiration, but if I know that's why I'm using Instagram, I don't need it on my phone. It's just on my computer and I just follow 10 artists and check it once a week. Like you really can start to point. And it was the number one thing that differentiated in that experiment, the people who ended up sustainably making changes and getting through the 30 days and those who didn't 
was to people who did the experimentation and the reflection. Like, let me try to figure out what's positive. They were much more successful than the people that just said, I'm sick of using my phone so much. So I'm just going to white knuckle it. Just 30 days will be good for me. I just got to, just got to get away from it or something. It doesn't last. So you don't use social media currently. Yeah. Of Do you find that a lot of people going through this process will, uh, will seek to basically arrive at a similar place to not use social media primarily? About half. Right. So, so about half when they went through this exercise, and these aren't quantified numbers, you know, this is just, they sent me reports and, right. and yeah. That's pretty good though. So 1700. Yeah. Yeah. So, so, so roughly half probably got rid of social media altogether. Once they did this exercise, they realized these things I care about, I don't, uh, social media is not the tools that's really helping. Mm-hmm. The other half kept some, there were some things in their life where some social media was uh, useful. Mm-hmm. But the key thing is if they knew why they were deploying social media, they could put fences around it. So for example, of those half that kept some social media, almost none of them kept it on their phone. Oh, interesting. Yeah. So you I can't optimize if you, if you don't know what it is, the function you're trying to optimize. So it's like this huge hack. It's like once you know this is why I'm using Twitter, then you can have a lot of rules about how you use Twitter. And and suddenly you, you take this cost-benefit ratio and it goes like way from the company's advantage and then way over towards your advantage. It's, it's kind of fascinating because I've been torn with social media, but I did this kind of process. I haven't actually done it for 30 days, which I probably should. I'll, I'll do it for like a week at a time and regularly and thinking what uh, what kind of approach to Twitter works for me. Uh, what I, I'm distinctly aware of the fact that I really enjoy posting once or twice a day and at that time checking from the previous post. It like It makes me feel, even when there's like, negative comments, they go right past me. And when there's positive comments, it makes you smile. I feel like love and connection with people, especially if people I, I know, but even just in general, it's like, it makes me feel like the world is full of awesome people. Okay, when you increase that from checking from two to like, I, I don't know what the threshold is for me, but probably like five or six per day, it starts going to anxiety world, like where negative comments will actually stick to me my, mentally. Uh, and and positive comments will feel more shallow. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's, it's it's kind of fascinating. So I uh, I've I've been trying to. There's been long stretches of time. I think December and January where I did just post and check, post and check. That was that makes me gr- really happy. Most of 2020, I did that. It made me really happy. Recently, I started ch- like I'll, I'll go. You know, you go right back in like a drug addict where you check it like, I don't know what that number is, but that number is high. It's not good. You don't come out happy. And you do no, not. no one comes out of a day full of Twitter celebrating humanity. And it's not even because I'm very fortunate to have a lot of just like positivity in my, the Twitter, but I, there's just a general anxiety. I wouldn't even say, I wouldn't even say it's, uh, it's probably the thing that you're talking about with the context switching. It's almost like an exhaustion. I wouldn't even say it's like a negative feeling. It's almost just an exhaustion to where I'm not creating anything beautiful in my life, just exhausted. Like an existential exhaustion. Existential exhaustion. But I wonder, do you think it's possible to use, from the people you've seen from yourself, to to use social media in the way I'm describing moderation? Or is it always going to become? When when people do this exercise, you get lots lots of configurations. So uh, for people that have a public presence, for example, like what you're doing is not that, not that unusual. 
okay, I, I post one thing a day and my audience likes it and and that's kind of it. Mm-hmm. Which, but you've thought through like, okay, this supports something I value, which is like having a sort of informal connection with my audience and being exposed to some sort of uh, positive randomness. You know? yes. like, okay, that's po- then you can say, if that's my goal, what's the right way to do it? Well, I don't need to be on Twitter on my phone all day. Maybe what I do is every day at five, I, I do my post and check on the day. So I, I have a writer friend, um, Ryan Holiday, mm-hmm. who writes about the Stoics a lot. And he has this similar strategy. He posts one quote every day from, uh, usually from a famous Stoic and sometimes from a contemporary figure. And that's just what he does. He just posts it. And it's a very positive thing. Like his readers really love it because it's just like a dose of inspiration. He doesn't spend time, he's never interacting with anyone on social media, right? right? But that's an example of, I figured out what's important to me, what's the best way to use tools to amplify it. uh, And then you get advantages out of the tools, so like, I like what you're doing. I looked you up. Before, I looked up your Twitter feed before I came came over here. I was curious. You, you're not on there a lot. No, I don't no. see you yelling at people. Now, do you think social media as a medium changed the cultural standards? And, and I mean it in a. Have you read Neil Postman at all? Have you read like a, Amusing Ourselves to Death? He was a social critic, technology critic, um, and wrote a lot about sort of technological determinism. So it, the ways, which is a really influential idea to a lot of my work, which is actually a little out of fashion right now in academia, but. Uh, the ways that the the properties and presence of technologies change things about humans in a way that's not really intended or planned by the humans themselves. And he is a, that book is all about how different communication medium, like fundamentally, just changed the way the human brain understands and operates. And so he sort of gets into the what happened when the printed word was widespread and how television changed it. And this was all pre-social media. But this is one of these ideas I'm having is like what to the degree to which and I, I get into it sometimes on, on my show. I get into a little bit like the degree to which like Twitter in particular, just changed the way that people conceptualized what, for example, debate and discussion was. Like it introduced a rhetorical dunk culture where it's yeah. sort of more about tribes not giving ground to other tribes. And and it's like, it's a complete, it, there's different places and times when that type of discussion was thought of differently, right? Well, yeah, absolutely. But I, I tend to believe, I don't know what you think, that there's the technological solutions. Like there's literally different features in Twitter that could completely reverse that. There's so much power in the different yeah. choices yeah. that are made. And it could still be highly engaging and have very different effects, perhaps more negative, but or hopefully more positive. Yeah, so, so, so I'm trying to pull these two things apart. So there, there's these two ways social media, let's say, could change the experience of reading a, a major newspaper today. Mm-hmm. One could be a little bit more economic, right? So, so the internet made it cheaper to get news. The newspapers had to retreat to a paywall model because it was the only way they were going to survive. But once you're in a paywall model, then then what you really want to do is make your tribe, which is within the paywall, very, very happy with you. So you want to work to them. But then there's the sort of the determinist point of view, which is yeah. the properties of Twitter, which were arbitrary. Jack and Evan, just whatever, let's just do it this way. Influenced the very way that people now understand and think right. about the world. So the, the one influenced the other, I think. Yeah. They they kind of started adjusting together. I I did this thing. I mean, I'm trying to understand this. Part of the part of the I've been playing with the, the entrepreneurial idea. There's a very particular dream I've had of a startup that this is a longer term thing uh, with has to do with artificial intelligence. But more and more, it seems like there's a, some trajectory through creating uh, social media type of technologies, very different than what people are thinking I'm doing. But uh, it's a kind of challenge to the way the Twitter is done. But 
it's not obvious what the best mechanisms are to still make an exceptionally engaging platform, like Clubhouse is very engaging, yeah. and not have any of the negative effects. I, For example, there's uh, Chrome extensions that allow you to turn off all likes and dislikes and all of that from Twitter. So you, all you're seeing is just the content. Yeah. On Twitter, that to me is creates, that's not a compelling experience at all because I still need, I would argue I still need the likes to know what's a tweet worth reading. Yeah. Because I don't only have a limited amount of time, so I need to know what's valuable. It's like great Yelp yeah. reviews on tweets or yeah, something. Yeah, exactly. But I've turned off on, uh, for example, on my account on YouTube, I've turned, uh, I wrote a Chrome extension that turns off all likes and dislikes and just views. Yeah. So I don't know how many views the video gets and so yeah. on, unless it's on my phone. But Do you like, take off the recommendations? Uh, the no, so, no. So on I, YouTube, some people, the distraction for YouTube is a big one for right. people. Yeah. No, I'm not worried about the distraction because I'm able to control myself on you, YouTube. You don't rabbit hole. No, I don't rabbit hole. So you have to know your demons or your addictions or whatever. Yeah. I, on YouTube, I'm okay. I don't have. I don't keep clicking. The negative feelings come from seeing the views on on stuff you've created. Have created. Oh, so you don't want to see your views. Yeah. yeah. So like, I'm just like speaking to the things that I'm aware of of myself that it yeah. are helpful and things that are not helpful emotionally. Yeah. And I feel like there should be, we need to create actually tooling for ourselves. That's not me with JavaScript, but anybody is able to create, sort of control the experience they that they have. Yeah. Well, so so my my big unified theory on social media is I'm very I'm very bearish yes. on the big platforms having a long future. You are. I think the That's moment. I think the moment of three or four major platforms is uh, not going to last, mm. right? So, I don't. Know, okay, this is just perspective, right? So you can start shorting these stocks uh, <laughs> on, on my. Don't tell. It's not financial. Advice. Yeah, yeah. Don't do Robinhood. Um, so here's here's. I think the the big mistake the major platforms made is when they they took out the network effect advantage, mm -hmm. right? So the original pitch, especially of something like Facebook or Instagram, was the people you know are on here, mm. right? So like what you use this for is you can connect to people that you already know. This is what makes the network useful. We So therefore, the value of our network grows uh, quadratically with the number of users. And therefore, it's such a head start that there's no way that someone else can catch up. Mm -hmm. But when they shifted and when Facebook took the lead of, say, we're going to shift towards a newsfeed model, mm -hmm. they basically said, we're going to try to, in the moment, get more data and get more likes. Like what we're going to go towards is actually just uh, seeing interesting stuff, mm -hmm. like seeing diverting information. So people took this social internet impulse to connect to people digitally to other tools, like group text messages and WhatsApp and stuff like this, right? So you don't think about these tools as, oh, this is where I connect with people. Once it's just a feed that's kind of interesting, now you're competing with everything else that can produce interesting content that's diverting. Mm -hmm. And I think that is a a much fiercer competition because now, for example, you're going up against podcast, right? I mean, like, okay, I guess, you know, the Twitter feed is interesting right now, um, but also a podcast is interesting or something else could be interesting too. I think it's a much fiercer competition when there's no, there's no more network effects, right? And so my sense is we're going to see a fragmentation into what I call long tail social media, hmm. where if I don't need everyone I know to be on a platform, then why not have three or four bespoke platforms I use where it's a thousand people and it's all we're all interested in, you know, whatever AI or comedy, and it, we've we've perfected this interface, and maybe it's like Clubhouse, it's audio or something, and, and we all pay two dollars, so we don't have to worry about attention harvesting, 
And that's going to be wildly more entertaining. Like, I mean, I'm thinking about comedians on Twitter. Mm-hmm. It's not the best internet possible format for them expressing themselves and being interesting that you have all these comedians that are trying to like, well, I can do like little clips and little whatever. Like, I don't know if there was a long tail social media. It's really, this is where the comedians are and there's podcast and the comedians are on podcast now. So this is my thought is that there's really no, there's really no strong advantage to having one large platform that everyone is on if mm-hmm. all you're getting from it is I now have different options for diversion and and like uplifting and aspirational or whatever types of entertainment that whole thing could fragment mm-hmm. and I think the glue that was holding together was network effects and I don't think they realized that when network effects have been destabilized they don't have the centrifugal force anymore mm-hmm. and they're spinning faster and faster but is is a twitter feed really that much more interesting than all these streaming services? Is it really that much more interesting than Clubhouse? Is it that much more interesting than podcast? I feel like they don't realize how unstable their ground actually is. Yeah, that's fascinating. But uh, the thing that makes Twitter and Facebook work, I mean, the, the newsfeed, you're exactly right. Like you can just duplicate the news. Like if it's, an, if it's not the social network and it's the newsfeed, then why not have multiple different feeds that are more, that are better at satisfying you? There's a dopamine gamification that they've figured out. Yeah. And uh, so you have to, whatever you create, you have to at least provide some pleasure in that same gamification kind of way. It doesn't have to have to do with scale of large social networks, but I mean, I guess you're implying that you should be able to design that kind of uh, mechanism in other forms. Or people are turning on that gamification. I mean, so people are getting wise to it. And are getting uncomfortable about it, yeah. right? So if yeah. I'm offering something, there these exist. It's like out sugar, here. people yeah. realize sugar is bad. Yeah, for you. sugar's great. Stop yeah. yeah, drinking a lot's great too. But it also, after a while, you yeah. realize there's there's problems. So some of the long tail social media networks that are out there that I've looked at, they offer usually like a deeper sense of connection. Like it's usually interesting people that you share some affinity and you have these carefully cultivated. I wrote this New Yorker piece a couple of years ago about the indie social media movement that really got into some of these different. Yeah, technologies, but I think the technologies are a distraction. We we focus too much on, you know, Mastodon versus, you know, whatever, like forget or Discord. Like actually let's forget the protocols right now. It's the idea of, okay, and there's all the a lot of these long tail social media groups, what people are getting out of it, which I think can outweigh the dopamine gamification is strong connection and motivation. Like you're in a group with other guys that are all trying to be, you know, better dads or something like mm-hmm. this. And and you talk to them on a regular basis and you're sharing your stories and there's interesting talks. And that's a powerful thing too. One interesting thing about scale of Twitter is you have these viral spread of information. So sort of uh, Twitter has become a newsmaker in itself. Yeah, I think it's a problem. <laughs> well, yes, but I wonder what replaces that. Because because then you immediately reporting. Well, no, <laughs> reporters would have to do some work again. I don't know. No, the problem with reporters and journalism is that they're they're intermediary. They have control. I mean, this is the problem in Russia currently. Is that you you have uh, it creates a shield between the the people and the news. the The interesting thing and the powerful thing about Twitter is that the news originates from the individual that's creating the news, like. You have the president of the United, States, the former president of the United States, on Twitter creating news. You have Elon Musk creating news. You have people announcing stuff yeah. on Twitter as opposed to talking to a journalist, and that feels much more genuine. And uh, it 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 feels very powerful. But actually, c- coming to realize it, it, it doesn't need the social 
network, you can just put that announcement on a YouTube type this thing. Is, this is what I'm thinking. Right. So this is my point about that because that's right. It, it, the, the democratizing power of the internet is fantastic. I mean, I'm an old school internet nerd, a guy that was, you know, telnetting in the servers and gophering before right. the World Wide Web was around, right? So I'm a huge internet booster and that's that's one of its big power. But when you put everything on Twitter, I think the fact that you've, you've taken, uh, you homogenized everything, right? So everything looks the same, moves with the same low friction, is very difficult. You have no what I call distributed curation, right? The only curation that really happens, there's a little bit with likes and also the algorithm, but if you look back to pre-Web 2.0 or early Web 2.0, when a lot of this was happening, let's say on blogs, where people owned their own servers and you had your different blogs, there was this distributed curation that happened where in order for your blog to get on people's radar, and this had nothing to do with any gatekeepers or legacy media, it was over time you got more links and people respected you and you would hear about this blog over here. And there's this whole distributed curation and filtering going on. So if you think like the 2004 presidential election, uh, most of the information people are getting from the internet was one of the first big internet news driven elections was from, you know, you had like the daily costs and and hmm. drudge, but there was like blogs that were out there. And, and this was back, Ezra Klein was just running a blog out of his, uh, you know, a dorm room at this point. Right. And you would in a distributed fashion gain credibility because, okay, I people have paid it. It's very hard to get people to pay attention to your blog. They're paying attention. I get linked to this kid Ezra or whatever. It seems to be really sharp. And now people are, are noticing it. And now you have a distributed curation that solves a lot of the problems we see when you have a completely homogenized, low friction environment like friction where, mm -hmm. I mean, Twitter, where any random conspiracy theory or whatever that people like can just shoot through and spread. Whereas if you're starting a blog to try to push QAnon or something like that, it's probably going to be a really weird looking blog. And you're going to have a hard time. Like it's just never going to show up on people's radar. Well, right. I mean, that, my, that, yeah. so everything you've said up until the very last statement, I would, I would agree with, I, it, <laughs> this is a topic I don't know a ton about, I guess. So QAnon, there's, yeah. uh, I think I'll uh, forget QAnon. Uh, yeah, no, we, uh, we can but QAnon is yeah. QAnon could be that. I also don't know. I should know more. I apologize. I don't know more. I mean, that's a power and, uh, the downside you can have, I mean, Hitler could have a blog today yeah. and he would have potentially a very large following if he's charismatic, if he's yeah. has, you know, is good with words, is able to express the ideas, whatever, maybe he's able to channel the frustration, the anger that people have about a certain thing. And so I think that's the power of blogs, but it's also the limitation, but that doesn't, we're not trying to solve that. The, you can't that, solve that, yeah. The fundamental problem yeah. you're saying is not the problem. The, your your thesis is that there's nothing special about large scale social networks that guarantees that they will keep existing. And it, it, it's important to remember for a lot of the older generation of internet activists, so the people who were very pro-internet in the early days, they were completely flabbergasted by the rise of these platforms. Say, so why would you take the internet and then build your own version of the internet where you own all the servers. Mm -hmm. And we, we built this whole distributed, the whole thing, we had open protocols. Uh, everyone anywhere in the world can use the same protocols. Your machine can talk to any other machine. It's the most de democratic communication system that's ever been built. And then these companies came along and said, we're gonna build our own, we'll just own all the servers and put them in buildings that we own. And the internet will just be the, the first mile to get you into our private internet where we owned the whole thing. It went, went completely against the entire motivation of the internet was like, yes, we. it's not going to be one person owns all the servers and you pay to access them. It's any one server that they own can talk to anyone else's server because we all agree on a standard set of protocols. And so the, the old guard of pro-internet people, 
never understood this move towards let's build private versions of the internet. Mm-hmm. Uh, we'll build three or four private internets and that's what we'll all use. It, it was the opposite, basically. Well, it's funny enough, I don't know if you follow, but Jack Dorsey is also uh, is a proponent and, and is helping to fund, create fully distributed versions of Twitter, essentially a thing yeah. that w- would potentially destroy Twitter. Yeah. But I think there, you know, there might be financial art, like business cases to be made there, I'm not sure. But that seems to be another alternative as as opposed to creating a bunch of uh, like the long tail, uh, creating like the ultimate long tail of like fully distributed. Yeah, which, which is which is what the internet is. But actually. that's that's sort of like long. When I'm thinking about long tail social media. I'm thinking it's uh, like the tech's not so important. Like there's groups out there, right? I, I know where the tech they use to actually implement their digital only social group, whatever. They might use Slack. They might right. use some combination of Zoom. Or it doesn't matter. I think in in the tech world. We want to build the beautiful protocol right. that, okay, everyone's going to use as just a federated server protocol in which we've worked out X, Y, and Z, and no one understands it because then the engineers need it all to make, I get it because I'm a nerd like this, like, okay, every standard has to fit with everything else and no one understands what's going on. Meanwhile, you know, you have this group of bike enthusiasts that are like, yeah, we'll just jump on a Zoom and have some Slack and put up a blog. The tech doesn't really matter. Like we built a world with our own curation, our own rules. Uh, our own sort of social ecosystem that's generating a lot of value. I, mean, I, don't, can, I don't know if it'll happen. There's a lot of money at stake with obviously these large, but I just think they're more, they're so, I mean, look how quickly Americans left Facebook, right? I mean, Facebook was savvy to buy other properties and, the, and to yeah. diversify, right? But how quick did that take for just standard Facebook news feed? Oh, yeah. Everyone of, under the age of something we're using it and no one under a certain age is using it now. It took like four years. I mean, this stuff is yeah, really- see, I believe- you, people can leave Facebook overnight. Yeah, like I, I think uh, Facebook hasn't actually messed up, for, like enough to. Uh, there's two things they haven't messed up enough for people to really leave aggressively, and there's no good alternative for for them to leave. I think if good alternatives pop up, it will just immediately happen. The stuff is a lot more culturally fragile. I think. I mean, Twitter's having a moment because it was feeding a certain type of. I mean, there's a lot of anxieties that was in the the sort of political sphere, anyways. That Twitter was working with, mm-hmm. um, but its moment could go to as well. I mean, it's a really arbitrary thing, short little things. And I read a Wired article about this earlier in the pandemic. Like, this is crazy that the way that we're trying to communicate information about the pandemic is all these weird arbitrary rules where people are screenshotting pictures of articles that are part of a tweet thread where you say one slash yeah. in under it. Like, we have the technology, guys, to, yeah. to like really clearly convey inf- long-form information to people. Like, why, are we, why do we have these? And I know it's because it's the gamified dopamine hits, but what a weird medium. There's no reason for us to have to have these threads that you have to find and pin with you screenshot. I mean, we have technology to communicate better using the internet. I mean, why are epidemiologists having to do tweet threads? Well, because there's mechanisms of publishing that make it easier on Twitter. I mean, we're evolving as a species and the internet is a very fresh thing. Yeah, And so it's kind of interesting to think that as opposed to Twitter, this is what Jack also complains about is Twitter's not innovating fast enough. Yeah. And... So it's almost like the people are innovating and thinking about their productive life faster than the platforms on which they operate can catch up. Yeah. And so at the point you, the gap grows sufficiently, they'll jump. A few people, a few innovative folks will just create an alternative and uh, perhaps distributed, uh, perhaps just many little silos 
and then people will jump and then we'll just continue this kind of way. Yeah, but see, I, I think like Substack, for example, what they're going to pull out of Twitter, among other things, is the audience that was, let's say, like slightly left of center, but um, slightly left of center, don't like Trump, uncomfortable with like postmodern critical theories made into political yes. action, right? And they're like, yeah, Twitter, there was a people on there talking about this and it made me feel sort of heard because I was feeling a little bit like yeah. a nerd about it. But honestly, I'd probably rather subscribe the four subs, you know, I'm going to have yeah. like Barry's and Andrew Sullivan's. I'll have like a Jesse signals. Like I'll have a few sub stacks I can subscribe to. And honestly, that's, I'm a knowledge worker who's 32 anyways, probably that's an email all day. And, yeah. and so like, there's an innovation that's going to, that group, you know, yep. it's going to suck them off. Which is actually a very large group. <laughs> yeah. That's a lot of, that's a lot of energy. And then once Trump's gone, I guess that's probably going to drive, that drove a lot of, uh, uh, more like Trump people off Twitter. Like this stuff is fragile, I so think. I de but the fascinating thing to me, because I've hung out on Parler for a short amount enough to to know that the interface matters. It's so fascinating, like that, yeah. that it's not just about ideas. Yeah. It's about creating like Substack to creating a pleasant experience, uh, addicting experience. No, you're right. You're right about that. And it's hard. And it's yeah, why the, it's this, this is one of the conclusions from that indie social media article is it's just the ugliness matters. And I don't mean even just aesthetically, but just the clunkiness of the interfaces, the, um, and I don't know, it's it, to some degree, the social media companies have spent a lot of money on this mm -hmm. and to some degree, it's a survivorship bias. Yeah. Right. I think Twitter, every time I hear Jack talks about this, it seems like he's as surprised as anyone else, mm -hmm. the way Twitter is being used. I mean, it's basically the way, you know, they had it. Uh, years ago, and then you know, it was like, great, it'll be statuses, right? Yeah, this is what I'm doing, you know, and my friends can follow me and see it. And without really changing anything, it just happened to hit everything right yeah. to support this other type of interaction. Well, there's also the JavaScript model, which uh, Brendan Ike talked about. He just implemented JavaScript, uh, like the crappy version of JavaScript in 10 days, threw it out there, and just uh, changed it really quickly. Yeah evolved it really quickly and now has become, uh, according to Stack Exchange, the most popular programming language in the world. It, yeah. it drives like most of the internet and even the back end and now mobile. And, yeah. and so that that's an argument for the kind of thing you're talking about where like like the bike club people yeah. could literally create the thing that would uh, you know run most of the internet yeah. in 10 years from now. Yeah. yeah. So th there's something to that like, as opposed to trying to get lucky or trying to think through stuff, is just to uh, to solve a particular problem. Do stuff, yeah, and then do stuff. Do stuff. Like, keep tinkering until you love it. Yeah, yeah. And then, uh, and of course, the sad thing is timing and luck matter, and that you can't really control. Yeah, that's the problem. Yeah, but uh, you can't go back to two thousand and seven. Yeah, that's like the number one thing you could do to have a lot of success with a new platform is go back in time yeah. fourteen years. <laughs> so the the thing you have to kind of think about is what is the like what's the totally new thing that uh, 10 years from now would seem obvious. I mean, some people saying Clubhouse is that, it, there's been a lot of stuff like Clubhouse before, yeah. but it it hit the right kind of thing. Uh, similar to Tesla actually, what Clubhouse did is it got a lot of re relatively famous people on there quickly. Yeah. And um, and then the the other effect is like, it's invite only, so like, oh, all the smart, like, famous people are on there. I wonder what's it's the FOMO. Like, fear that you're missing something really profound, that's exciting happening there. So those social effects, and then once you actually show up, I'm a huge fan of this. It's the JavaScript model. Is like, Clubhouse is so dumb, 
like so simple in its interface. Like you literally can't do anything except mute, unmute. There's a mute button. Yeah. And there's a leave quietly button. Yeah. And that's it. Yeah. <laughs> and that's, it's kind of. I love single use technology. That, yeah. That, that sense. Yeah. There's no like, there's no, it's yeah. just like trivial. And, uh, you know, Twitter kind of started like that. Facebook started like that. Yeah. But they've evolved quickly to add all these features and so on. And, you know, I do hope Clubhouse stays that way. Yeah. It'd be interesting. Or, or, there, or there's alternatives. I mean, I, I mean, even with Clubhouse, though, the, the so one of the issues with a lot of these platforms, I think, is uh, bits are cheap enough now mm-hmm. uh, that we don't really need a unicorn investor model. I mean, the, the investors need that model. But there's really not really an imperative of we need something that can scale to 100 million plus a year revenue so because it was going to require this much seed and angel investment and and you're not going to get this much seed and angel investment unless you can have a potential exit this this wide because you have to be part of a portfolio that depends on one out of 10 exiting here if you don't actually need that and you don't need to satisfy that investor model which i think is basically the case i mean bits are so cheap everything is so cheap you don't necessarily, so even like with Clubhouse, it's, it's, it's investor backed, right? It's this notion of like, this needs to be a major platform. Um, but the bike club doesn't necessarily need a major platform. That's where I'm interested. I mean, I don't know. I, there, there's so much money. That's the only problem that bets against me is that you can concentrate a lot of capital if you do these things right. Yeah. I mean, so Facebook was like a, a fantastic capital concentration machine. It's crazy how much, where it even found that capital in the world that it could concentrate and ossify in the stock price that a very small number of people have, you know, access to, right? That's that's incredibly powerful. So when there when there is a possibility to 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 consolidate and gather a huge amount of capital, that's a huge imperative that's very hard for the bike club to go up against. So, but there's a lot of money in the bike club. If you see with the Wall Street uh, bets, yeah, when, that, when a bunch of people get together, I yeah. mean. It doesn't have to be a bike. It could be a bunch of different bike clubs just kind of team up yeah. uh, to overtake. That's what we're doing now. Yeah. yeah. Or we're going to repurpose off the shelf stuff. Yes. That's not, you were going to, yeah, we're going to repurpose whatever it was for office productivity or something. And right. like the, the clubs using Slack just to build out these, you know. Yeah. Let's talk about email. <laughs> yeah, that's right. There, I, I wrote a book. <laughs> <laughs> you you're wrote uh, yet another amazing book, uh, World Without Email. Maybe one way to enter this discussion is to ask, what is the hyperactive hive mind, which is the concept you open the book with? Yeah, and the devil. And the devil. <laughs> it's, it's the scourge of hundreds of millions. Uh, so I think, so I, I, I called this book A World Without Email. The real title should be A World Without the Hyperactive Hive Mind Workflow. But my publisher didn't like that. Yeah. Right? So we had to get a little bit more pithy. I was trying to answer the question after deep work, why is it so hard to do this? Like if this is so valuable, if we can produce much higher, if people are much happier, um, why do we check email all day? Why are we on Slack all day? Yeah. You know, and so I started working on this book immediately after deep work, and so my my initial interviews were done in 2016. So it took five years to pull the threads together. I was trying to understand why is it so hard for most people to actually find any time to do the stuff that actually moves the needle. And the story was, and I thought this was, I hadn't heard this reported anywhere else. That's why it took me so long to pull it together, is email arrives on the scene. Email spreads. I trace it. It really picks up steam in the early 1990s. Between like 1990 and 1995, it makes its move, right? Mm -hmm. And it does so for very pragmatic reasons. It was replacing existing communication technologies that it was better than. It was mainly the fax machine, voicemail, and memos, right? So this was just better, right? So it was a killer app because it was useful. 
in its wake came a new way of collaborating, and that's the hyperactive hive mind. So it's the like the virus that follows the the rats that went through Western Europe for the Black Pig. As email spread through organizations, in its wake came the hyperactive hive mind workflow, which says, okay, guys, here's the way we're going to collaborate. We'll just work things out on the fly with unscheduled back and forth messages. Just boom, boom, boom. Let's go back and forth. Hey, what about this? Did you see this? What about that client? Let's What's going on over here? That followed email. It completely took over office work. And the the need to keep up with all of these asynchronous back and forth unscheduled messages, as those got more and more and more, and we had more of those to service, the need to service those required us to check more and more and more and more, mm-hmm. right? And so by the time, and I go through the numbers, but by the time you get to today, now the average knowledge worker has to check one of these channels once every six minutes. Because every single thing you do in your organization, how you talk to your colleagues, how you talk to your vendors, how you talk to your clients, how you talk to the HR department, it's all this asynchronous unscheduled back and forth messaging. And you have to service the conversations. And it spiraled out of control and it has sort of devolved a lot of work in the office now to all I do is constantly tend communication channels. So so it's fascinating what you're describing is uh, nobody ever paused in this whole evolution to try to create a system that actually works. That it was kind of like a huge fan of cellular automata. So it just kind of started yeah. uh, very, a very simple mechanism, just like cellular automata, it just kind of grew to overtake all the fundamental communication of how we do business and also personal life. Yeah, and that's one of the big ideas is that the unintentionality. Yeah. Right, so this goes back to technological determinism. I mean, this is a weird business book because I go deep on philosophy, I go yeah. deep on, for some reason, we, we get into paleoanthropology for a while, we do a lot of neuroscience, it's, it's kind of a weird book. Uh, but I got real into this technological determinism, right? This notion that just the presence of a technology can change how people act. That's my big argument about what happened with the hive mind. And I can document specific examples, right? So I document this example in IBM 1987, maybe 85, but it's in like the mid to late eighties, IBM, our monk headquarters, we're going to put an internal email, right? Because, uh, it's convenient. And so they ran a whole study. And so I talked to the engineer who ran the study, Adrian Stone, like we're going to run this study to figure out how much do we communicate because it was still an era where it's expensive, right? So you have to provision a mainframe so you can't over-provision. Like we want to know how much communication actually happens. So they went and figured it out. How many memos, how many calls, how many notes? Great, we'll provision a mainframe to handle email that can handle all of that. So if all of our communication moves to email, the mainframe will still be fine. In three days, they had melted it down. People were communicating six times more than that estimate. So just in three days, the presence of a low friction digital communication tool drastically changed how everyone collaborated. So that's not enough time for, you know, an all hands meeting. Guys, we figured it out. You know, this is what we need to communicate a lot more is what's going to make us uh, more productive. We need more emails. It's emergent. Isn't that just on the positive end, amazing to you? Like, isn't email amazing? Like in those early days, like just the frictionless communication. I mean, Email is awesome. Like uh, people say that there's a lot of problems with emails, just like people say a lot of problems with Twitter and so on. It's kind of cool that you can just send a little note. It was a miracle, right? Yeah. This was, so I, I so I, I wrote a. This originally was a New Yorker piece from a year or two ago called "Was Email a Mistake?" and then it's in the book too. Yeah. But I go into the history of email, like why did it come along, and it solved a huge problem. So it was it was the problem of fast asynchronous communication. Yeah. And it was a problem that did not exist until we got large offices. 
and we got large offices, synchronous communication, like let's get on the phone at the same time. There's too much overhead to it. There's too many people you might have to talk to. Asynchronous communication, like let me send you a memo when I'm ready and you can read it when you're ready, took too long. And so it was like a huge problem. So one of the things I talked about is the way that when they built the uh, CIA headquarters, there was such a need for fast asynchronous communication that they built a pneumatic powered email system. They had these pneumatic tubes all throughout the headquarters with electromagnetic routers. So you would put your message in a plexiglass tube and you would turn these brass dials about the location. You would stick it in these things and pneumatic tubes and it would shoot and sort and work its way through these tubes to show up in just a minute or something at the floor and at the general office suite where you wanted to go. And my point is the fact that they spent so much money to make that work show how important fast asynchronous communication was to large offices. So when email came along, it was a productivity silver bullet. It was a miracle. I talked to the researchers who were working on computer-supported collaboration in the late 80s, trying to figure out how are we going to use computer networks to be more productive, and they were building all these systems and tools. Email showed up. It just wiped all that research off the map. Mm-hmm. There was no need to build these custom intranet applications. There was no need to build these these communication platforms. Email could just do everything, yeah. right? So it was a miracle application, which is why it spread everywhere. But it's one of these things where, okay, unintended consequences, right? You had this miracle productivity silver bullet. It spread everywhere, but it was so effective. It just, you know, I don't know, like a drug. I'm sure there's some pandemic uh, metaphor <laughs> yeah. here, analogy here of a drug that like is so effective at treating this that it also blows up your whole immune system and then everyone gets sick. But well, ultimately, it probably significantly increased the productivity of the world. But there's a kind of hump that it, it now has plateaued. And then what we're the the fundamental question you're asking is like, okay, how do we take the next? Uh, how do we keep increasing the productivity? Yeah, I th- now I think it brought it down. So my my I think so my contention and uh, so again, there's a little bit in the book, but I have a more recent Wired article. Uh, that put some newer numbers to this. I subscribe to the hypothesis that the hyperactive hive mind was so detrimental. So yeah, it it helped productivity at first, right? When you could do fast asynchronous communication, but very quickly there was a sort of exponential rise in communication amounts. Mm -hmm. Once we got to the point where the hive mind meant you had to constantly check your email, I think that made us so unproductive that it actually was pulling down non-industrial productivity. And I think the only reason why, Mm. so it certainly has not been going up, that metric's been stagnating for a long time now while all of this was going on. I think the only reason why it hasn't fallen is that we added these extra shifts off the books. Mm-hmm. Like, I'm going to work for three hours in the morning. I'm going to work for three hours at night. And only that, I think, has allowed us to basically maintain a stagnated non-industrial growth. It, we should have been shooting up the charts. I mean, this is miraculous innovations in computer yeah. networks. And then we built out these $100 billion ubiquitous worldwide high-speed wireless internet infrastructure with supercomputers in our pockets where we could talk to anyone at any time. Like, why did our productivity not shoot off the charts? Because our brain can't context switch once every six minutes. So it's fundamentally back to the context switching. Context switching is poison. In context switching is poison. It's the... What, what is it about email that forces context switching? Is it both our psychology that drags us in yeah, or is no, it the expectation of... Yeah, right, right. Because it's not... I think we've seen this through a personal a personal will or failure lens recently. Like, yes. oh, am I addicted to email? Yes. Uh, I have bad etiquette about my email. No, it's the underlying workflow. So the tool itself, I will exonerate. Right? I think I would rather use POP3 than a fax protocol, right? I think it's easier. The issue is the hyperactive hive mind workflow. So if I am now collaborating with 20 or 30 different people with back and forth unscheduled messaging, I have to tend those conversations, right? It's like you have 30 
metaphorical ping pong tables. And when the balls come back across, you have to pretty soon hit it back or stuff actually grinds to a halt. Mm-hmm. So it's the, it's the workflow that's the problem. It's not the tool. It's the fact that we use it to do all of our collaboration. Let's just send messages back and forth, which means you can't be far from checking that because mm-hmm. if you take a break, if you batch, if you try to have better habits, it's going to slow things down. So my whole villain is this hyperactive hive mind workflow. The tool is fine. I don't want the tool to go away, but I want to replace the hyperactive hive mind workflow. I think this is going to be one of the biggest value generating productivity revolutions of the 21st century. I quote an anonymous CEO is pretty well known who says this is going to be the moonshot of the 21st century. It's going to be of that importance. There's so much latent productivity that's being suppressed because we just figure things out on the fly in email that as we figure that out, I think it's going to be uh, hundreds of billions of dollars. You're so absolutely right. The question is, what does the world without email look like? How do we fix email? So what happens is, at least in my vision, you identify, well, actually, there's these different processes that make up my workday. Like These are things that I do repeatedly, often in collaboration with other people that do useful things for my company or whatever. Right now, most of these processes are implicitly implemented with the hyperactive hive mind. How do we do this thing? Like answering client questions to shoot messages back and forth. You know, how do we do this thing? Posting podcast episodes, we'll just figure it out on the fly. Mm-hmm. My main argument is we actually have to do like they did in the industrial sector, take each of these processes and say, is there a better way to do this? Mm-hmm. And by better, I mean a way that's going to minimize the need to have unscheduled back and forth messaging. So we actually have to do process engineering. This created a massive growth in productivity in the industrial sector during the 20th century. We have to do it in knowledge work. We can't just rock and roll in inboxes. We actually have to say, how do we deal with client questions? Well, let's put in place a process that doesn't require us to send messages back and forth. How do we post podcast episodes? Let's automate this to a degree where I don't have to just send you a message on the fly. And you do this process by process, and the pressure on that inbox is released. And now you don't have to check it every six minutes. So you still have email. I mean, like, I need to send you a file. Sure, I'll use email. But we're not coordinating or collaborating over email or Slack, which is just a faster way of doing the hive mind. I mean, Slack doesn't solve anything there. Uh, You have better structured bespoke processes. I think that's what's going to unleash this massive productivity. Bespoke. So the interesting thing is like, for example, you and I exchanged some emails. So obviously I, uh, for let's just say my particular case, I schedule podcasts. There's a bunch of different tasks, fascinatingly enough, that I do that can be converted into processes. Yeah. Is it up to me to create that process? Or do you think we also need to build tools just like email was a protocol for uh, helping us create processes for the different tasks? I mean, I I think ultimately the whole organization, the whole team has to be involved. I think ultimately there's certainly a lot of investor money being spent right now to try to figure out those tools, right? So I think Silicon Valley has figured this out in the past couple of years. This is the difference between when I was talking to people after deep work uh, and now five years later is this scent is in the air, mm-hmm. right? Because there's so much latent productivity. So yes, there are going to be new tools, which I think could help. There are already tools that exist. I mean, in the different groups I profiled use things like Trello or Basecamp or Asana or Flow and, you know, our schedule wants and Acuity. Like there's, there's a lot of tools out there. The key is not to think about it in terms of what tool do I replace email with? Instead, you think about it with, I have a, pro- we're trying to come with a process that reduces back and forth messages. Oh, what tool might help us might help us do that. Yeah. And I, and I would push, it's not about necessarily efficiency. In fact, some of these things are going to take more time. So writing a, a letter to someone is like a high value activity. It's probably mm-hmm. worth doing. Mm-hmm. The thing that's killer is the back and forth because now I have to keep checking, right? So 
we scheduled this together because I, I knew you from before, but like most of the the interviews I was scheduling for this, actually, I have a process with my publicist where we mm-hmm. use a shared document and she puts stuff in there and then I check it twice a week and there's scheduling options. And I say, here's when I want to do this one or this will work for this one or whatever. And it takes more time in the moment nice. than just, but it means that we have almost no back and forth messaging for podcast scheduling, which without this, so like with my UK publisher, I didn't put this process into place because we're not doing as many interviews, but it's all the time. And I, I'm like, oh man, I could really feel the difference, right? It's the back yeah. and forth that's killer. I suppose it is up to the individual people involved. Like you said, uh, uh, knowledge workers, like they have to carry the responsibility of uh, creating processes. Like how, always asking the first principles question, how can this be converted yeah. into a process? Yeah, so you can yeah. start by doing this yourself like just with what you can control. Uh, I think ultimately once the te- teams are doing that, I think that's probably the right scale. If you try to do this at the organizational scale, you're going to get bureaucracy, right? So if that's it's, exactly you know, right. All right, if, if, uh, if Elon Musk is going to dictate down to everyone at Tesla or something like this, that's too much removed and you get bureaucracy. But if it's, we're a team of six that's working together on, you know, whatever powertrain software, then we can figure out on our own, what are our processes? How do we want to do this? So it's ultimately also creating a culture where saying like an email, sending an email just for the hell of it, it should be taboo. Like, so like you are being, uh, you're being destructive to the productivity of the team by sending this email as as opposed to uh, helping develop uh, a process and so on uh, that that will ultimately automate this. That's why I'm trying to spread this message of the context switches as poison. I get so much into the science of it. I think we underestimate how much it kills us Mm -hmm. to have to wrench away our context, look at a message and come back. And so once you have the mindset of, it's a huge thing to ask of someone to have to take their attention off something and look back at this. And if they have to do that for three or four times, like we're just going to figure this out on the fly and every message is going to require five checks of the inbox while you wait for it. Well, now you've created whatever it is at this point, 25 or 30 context shifts. Like you've just done a huge disservice to someone's day. This would be like if I had a professional athlete, it's like, hey, do me a favor. I need you to go do this press interview, but to get there, you're gonna have to carry this sandbag and sprint up this hill, like completely exhaust your muscles. And then you have to go play a game. Like, of course, I'm not gonna ask an athlete to do like an incredibly physically demanding thing right before a game. But something as easy as thoughts, question mark, or like, hey, do you wanna jump on a call? And it's gonna be six back and forth messages mm-hmm. to figure it out it's kind of the cognitive equivalent, right? Mm-hmm. You're taking the wind out of someone. Yeah, and by the way, for people who are listening, because I recently posted a few job openings for so I want to help with this thing. And uh, w- one of the things that people are surprised when they work with me is how many spreadsheets and processes are involved. Yeah, it's like Claude Shannon, right? I, I talked about communication theory or information theory. It takes time to come up with a clever code up mm-hmm. front. So you spend more time up front figuring out those spreadsheets and trying to get people on board with it. But then, your communication going forward is all much more efficient. So over time, you're using much less bandwidth, right? So you 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 do pain up front. Yes. It's quicker just right now to send an email. But if I spend a half day to do this over the next six months, I've saved myself six hundred emails. Now here's a tough question uh, for you know from the computer science perspective, we often over optimize. So you create processes, uh, and you okay, just like you're saying. It's so pleasurable to increase uh, in the long-term productivity that sometimes you just enjoy that process in itself by just creating processes and uh, you actually never 
like it has a negative effect on productivity long term because you're too obsessed with the processes. Is is that is that uh, a nice problem to have? Essentially, I mean, it's a problem. I mean, because there, let's look at the one sector that does do this, which yeah. is uh, developers. Yeah. Right. So agile methodologies like Scrum or Kanban are basically workflow methodologies that are much better than the hyperactive hive mind. But man, some of those programmers get pretty obsessive. I don't know if you've ever talked to a whatever level three scrum master. They get really obsessive about like it has to happen exactly this way. And it's probably seven times more complex than it needs to be. I'm hoping that's just because nerds like me, you know, like to do that. But it's it's a a broadly probably an issue, right? We have to be careful because you can just go down that that fiddling path. Like, so it, it needs to be, here's how we do it. Let's reduce the messages and let's roll. You know, mm-hmm. um, you can't save yourself through if you can get the process just right. Right. Th- so th- I wrote this article kind of recently called the rise and fall of getting things done. And I profiled this productivity guru named Merlin Mann. And I talked about this movement called productivity prawn as like elite speak term in the early two thousands where people just became convinced that if they could combine their productivity systems with software and they could find just the right software, just the right configuration where they could offload most of the difficulty of work, what happened with the machines would kind of figure it out for, and then they could just sort of crank widgets and it'd be, and the whole thing fell apart because it's work is hard and it's hard to do and making decisions about what to work on is hard and no system can really do that for you. So you have to have this, this sort of balance between I, uh, context switches are poison. So we got to get rid of the context switches. Mm-hmm. Once like something's working good enough to get rid of the context switches, then get after it. Yeah, there's a psychological process there for me. Um, the OCD nature, like I've literally embarrassingly enough have lost my shit before when, uh, so in, in many of the processes that involve Python scripts, the rule is to not use spaces. Underscores only, there's like rules for like how you format stuff, okay? And like, I should not lose my shit when somebody had a space and maybe capital letters. Like, it's okay to have a space. I think because there's this feeling like something is not perfect. Yeah. And uh, as opposed to in the Python script, allowing some flexibility around that, you create this programmatic way that's flawless. And when everything's working perfectly, it's yeah. perfect. But actually, if you strive for perfection, it has the same stress, like has a lot of the stress that you were seeking to escape with the context switching. Yeah. Because you're almost stressing about errors. Yeah. Like when the process is functioning, you're there's always this anxiety of like, I wonder if it's gonna succeed. Yeah. I, I wonder if it's gonna succeed. Yeah. No, no, I think some of that's just you and I probably. I mean, it's just our mindset, right? We're in we do computer science, right? So chicken and egg. Yeah. I guess. And a lot of the processes end up working here are much rougher. It's like, okay, instead of letting clients just email me all the time, we have a weekly call and then we send them a breakdown of everything we committed to, right? That's a process that works. Okay. I get asked a lot of questions because I'm the JavaScript guy in the company. Instead of doing it by email, I have office hours. Yeah. This is what Basecamp does. All right. So you come to my office hours, that cuts down a lot of back and forth. All right. We're going to, instead of emailing about this project, we'll have a, a Trello board and we'll do a weekly really structured status meeting real quick. What's going on? Who needs what? Let's go. And now everything's on there and on our inboxes. We don't have to send as many messages. So like that rough level of granularity, that gets you most of the way there. So the parts that you can't automate and turn into a process. So how many parts like that do you think should remain in a perfect world? And 
for those parts where email is still useful, what do you recommend those emails look like? How how should you write the emails? When should you send them? Yeah, I think email email is good for delivering information. Right. So I think of it like a fax machine or something, you know, it's a really good fax machine. So if I need to send you something and you just send you a file, I need to broadcast a new policy or something like email is a great way to do it. It's bad for collaboration. So if you're having a conversation, like we're trying to reach a decision on something, I'm trying to learn about something, I'm trying to clarify what something, what, what this is, that, that's more than just like a one answer type question, then I think that you shouldn't be doing an email. But see, here's the thing. Like you and I don't talk often. And so we have a kind of new interaction. It's not how, so sure, yeah, you have a book coming out, so there's a process and so on. But say there, don't you think there's a lot of novel interactive experiences? Yeah, I think it's fine. So you could just for every novel experience, it's okay to have a a little bit of an exchange. It's fine. Like, I think it's fine uh, if stuff comes in over the transom or it's you you hear from someone you haven't heard from in a while. Mm -hmm. I think all that's fine. I mean, th- that's that's email at its best. Where it starts to kill us is where all of our collaboration is happening with the back and forth. So when you've moved the bulk of that out of your inbox, now you're back in that Meg Ryan movie, like you got mail, where it's like, all right, load this up, and you wait for yeah. the modem. You're like, oh, we got a message. Yeah, <laughs> so, yeah. And like, Lex, a... Lex sent me a message. This yeah. is interesting, right? Yeah. You're back to the AOL days. So you're talking about the bulk of the the business world, where like email has replaced the actual. Uh, communication, all the communication protocols required to accomplish anything. Everything is just happening with messages. So if, if you now get most stuff done, repeatable collaborations with with other processes that don't require you to check these inboxes, then the inbox can serve like an inbox, mm-hmm. which includes hearing from interesting people, right? Or sending something, hey, I don't know if you saw this, I thought you might like it. Like, it's great for that. So there's, there's probably a bunch of people listening to this that are like, uh, yeah, but I work on a team and they're all they use is email. How do you start the revolution from like the ground up? Yeah, well, do it. Do asymmetric optimization first. So identify all your processes and then change what you can change, and be socially very careful about it. So don't necessarily say like, okay, this is the new process we all have to do. Yeah. You're, you're just, you know, hey, we gotta get this report ready. Here's what I think we should do. Like, I'll get a draft into our Dropbox folder by like noon on Monday. Grab it. Uh, I won't touch it again until Tuesday morning, and then I'll look at your changes. I have this office hours always scheduled Tuesday afternoon, so if there's anything that catches your attention, grab me then. But I've told the designer who CC'd on this that uh, by COB Tuesday, the final version will be ready for them to take and polish or whatever. Like the person on the other end is like, great, I'm glad you know Cal has a plan. So I just what do I need to do? I need to edit this tomorrow, whatever, right? But you've actually pulled them into a process. That means we're going to get this report together without having to just go back and forth. So you just asymmetrically optimize these things and then you can begin the conversation and maybe that's where my book comes in place you just sort of yeah slide it <laughs> slide it across the <laughs> so desk buy the book and just leave it uh, leave it g- g- the, give it to yeah. everybody on your team okay so we solved the bulk of the email problem with this is there a case to be made that even for like communication between you and i we should move away from uh, from email. Like for example, there's a guy I recently, I don't know if you know comedians, but there's a guy named Joey Diaz yeah. that I've had an interaction with recently. And that guy, first of all, the sweetest human, despite what his comedy sounds like, is the sweetest human being. And he's a big proponent of just pick up the, the phone yeah. and call. Yeah. And it makes me so uncomfortable when people call me. Yeah. It's like, I don't know what to do with this thing. Uh, but it kind of gets everything done quicker, I think, if if I remove the anxiety from that. Is there a case to be made for that? Or yeah. is email 
could still be the most efficient way to do this. No, I mean, look, if you if you have to interact with someone, there's a lot of efficiency and synchrony, right? And this is something from the distributed system theory where you know if you go from synchronous to asynchronous networks, there's a huge amount of overhead to the asynchrony. So actually yeah. the protocols required to solve things in asynchronous networks are significantly more complicated and fragile mm -hmm. than synchronous protocols. So if we can just do real time, it's usually better. And also from an uh, interaction, like social connection standpoint, there's a lot more information in the human voice and the back and forth. Uh, yeah, if you just call stuff very generational, right? Like our generation will be comfortable talking on the phone in a way that like a younger generation mm -hmm. isn't, but an older generation is more comfortable with, well, you just call people. Yeah. Whereas we, so there's, there's a happy medium, but most of my good friends, we just talk, we have regular phone calls. Okay. Yeah. It's not, Schedule? I don't just call them. We schedule okay. it. We Got schedule it. it. Yeah. Just on text. Like, yeah, you want to talk sometime soon do you do you ever have a process around friends not really no i feel like i should i feel like uh well you have like a lot of interesting friend possibilities yeah. is you yeah. have like an interesting problem right like really interesting people you can talk to well that's that's one problem the other one is the introversion where i'm just afraid of people and get really stressed like yeah. i freak out and so you picked a good line of work <laughs> <laughs> yeah now perhaps it's the goggins thing it's like facing your fears or whatever but uh, but it's almost like there's a, it has to do with the timetables thing and the deep work that the nice thing about the processes is it not only uh, automates sort of uh, automates away the context switching, it ensures you do the important things too. Like yeah. it's like prioritize. So the thing is with email, because everything is done over email, you can be, lazy in the same way with like social networks and and do the easy things first yeah. that are not that important. So the process also enforces that you do the important things. And for me, the important things is like, okay, it sounds weird, but like social connection. No, that's one of the most important things in, in all of human existence. Yeah. And doing it, the, the paradoxical thing, I got into this for digital minimalism, uh, the more you sacrifice on behalf of the connection, the stronger the connection feels, right? So sacrificing non-trivial time and attention on behalf of someone is what tells your brain that this is a, a serious relationship, which is why social media had this paradoxical effect of making people feel less social because mm -hmm. it took the friction out of it. And so the brain just doesn't like, yeah, you've been commenting on this person's whatever, you've been retweeting them or sending them some text. You haven't, it's not hard enough. And then, then the, the the perceived strength of that social connection diminishes. Where if you talk to them or go spend time with them or whatever, you're going to feel better about it. Uh, so the the friction is good. I have a thing with some of my friends where at the end of each call, we take a couple minutes to schedule the next. Oh, okay. Then you never. Have to, it's like I do with haircuts or something, right? Like if I don't schedule it, then yeah. I'm never going to get my haircut, right? Uh, and so we, it's like okay, when do you want to talk next? You know. Yeah, that's a really that's a really yeah. good idea. I I just don't call friends, and uh, like every ten years, I do something dramatic for them so that we maintain the friendship. Like I, I murder somebody that they really don't like, yeah, or exactly. I just careful, man. Joey's go, Joey might ask you to do that. <laughs> yeah, that's why. I, oh, this is one of my favorite. Lex, things. I need to come down to New Jersey. <laughs> well, that's exactly what we're gonna do. With that robot dog of yours. <laughs> we're gonna go down to Jersey. There's a special human. I I love the comedian world. They've been shaking up. I don't know if you listen to Joe Rogan, all those folks. They kind of um, are doing something interesting for MIT and, and academia. They're shaking up this world a little bit, like podcasting, because comedians are paving the way for podcasting. Yeah. 
And so you have like Andrew Huberman, who's a neuroscientist of yeah. Stanford, friend of mine now. Yeah, I know. He, he's like into podcasting now, and you're into podcasting. Of course, you're not necessarily podcasting about computer science currently, right? Yeah. But th that, it, it feels like you could have a lot of the free spirit of the comedians implemented by the people who are academically trained. Who actually have a niche specialty. Yeah, yeah. And, and then and then that results, I mean, who knows what the experiment looks like, Yeah, but that results me being able to talk about robotics with Joey Diaz Yeah, when he says, you know, drops F-bombs every other sentence. And I, the world is like, I've seen actually a shift within uh, colleagues and friends within MIT where they're becoming much more accepting of that kind of thing. It's very interesting. That's interesting. So you're seeing, because I, okay. Because they're I, seeing how popular it is. They're like, Well, you're Wait really a popular. I don't know how they think about it at Georgetown, for example. I don't know. It's interesting. But I think what, what happens is the popularity of it combined with just good conversations with people they respect. It's like, oh, okay, wait, this is the thing. Yeah. And, and this is more fun to listen to than a shitty Zoom lecture. Yeah about their work. Yeah. And it's like, there's something here. There's something interesting. And we don't, nobody actually knows what that is, just like with like Clubhouse or something. Nobody's figured out like, where is this medium take? Is this a legitimate medium of education? Yeah. Or is this just like a fun? Well, that's your innovation, I think, was we can bring on professors. Yeah. And, and I, know, I know Joe Rogan did some of that too, but, but you know, but you, your professors in your field. Like, yeah, you bring exactly. on all these MIT guys who I remember, you know, well, that's been the big challenge for me is I don't, is I feel, uh, I would I would ask big like philosophical questions of uh, maybe people like yourself that are like really well public. Like, so, so for example, you have a lot of excellent papers on, uh, you know, that a lot, has a lot of theory in it, right? And there's some temptation to just go through papers and I think it's possible to actually do that. I haven't done that much, but I think it's possible. It just requires a lot of preparation. And I can probably only do that with things that I'm actually like in the field I'm aware of. But th there's a dance that I, I would love to be able to try to hit right, where it's actually yeah. getting to the core of some interesting ideas as opposed to just talking about philosophy. Yeah. At the same time, there's a large audience of people that just wanna be inspired by like, by disciplines where they don't necessarily know the details. Yeah. But there's a lot of people that are like, hmm, I'm really curious. I've been thinking about pivoting careers yeah. into software engineering. They would love to hear from people like you about computer science, yeah. even if it's like theory. Yeah, but it, just like the idea that you can have big ideas, you push them through and it's interesting, yeah. you, you fight for it, yeah. Well, there's some, uh, there's, what is it, computer file and, uh, uh, number file, these YouTube channels. There's uh, there's channels I watch on like chess, exceptionally popular, where I don't re I don't understand maybe eighty percent of the time what the hell they're talking about because they're talking about like why this move is better than this move. But I love yeah. the passion and the genius yeah. of those people and just overhearing it. Yeah, I don't know why that's so exciting. Or have you, do you look at like Scott Aronson's blog at all? The yeah. settled optimized. Yeah, yeah, it's like hardcore complexity theory, yeah. but it's. There's an enthusiasm, or like Terry Tao's blog. I mean, a little bit of humor. Yeah, oh, Terry Tao has a blog. He used to. Yeah, he would. Oh, he uh, and it would just be 
I'm going all in on, you know, here's the new <laughs> affine group with which you can do whatever, whatever. I mean, it was just equations. Well, in the case of Scott Aronson, he's good. He's able to turn on like the inner troll and comedian and so on. He, yeah. he's, he's, he keeps the fun, which is the best of And he's a of philosophical book. guy. He wrote yeah, that. He turns book. on the philosophy. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, we're exploring these different ways of communicating yeah. science and, and, and exciting the world. Speaking of which, I got to ask you about computer science. <laughs> yeah, that's right. I do some of that. <laughs> uh, so, I mean, a, a lot of it, a lot of your work is what inspired this deep thinking about productivity from all the different angles, because some of the most rigorous work is mathematical work and in computer science, that theoretical computer science. Let me ask the Scott Aronson question of like, is, is there something to you that stands out in particular that's beautiful or inspiring or just really insightful about computer science or the, or maybe mathematics? I mean, I like theory. And in particular, what I've always liked in theory is the notion of impossibilities. That's kind of my specialty. So within the, so within the context of distributed algorithms, my specialty is impossibility results. So the idea that you can argue nothing exists that solves this or nothing exists that can solve this faster than this. And that's, I think that's really interesting. And that goes all the way back to Turing. There's his original paper on computable numbers with their connection to that it's in German, the Eichschlittung problem, but basically the German name that Hilbert called the decision problem. This was pre-computers, but he was, you know, he's English, so it's written in English. So it's a very accessible paper. And it's it lays the foundation for all of theoretical computer science. He just has this insight. He's like, well, if we think about like an algorithm, I mean, he figures out like all effective procedures or Turing machines are basically algorithms. We could really describe a Turing machine with a number, mm -hmm. which we can now imagine with like computer code, you could just take a source file and just treat the binary version of the file as like a really long number, right? But he's like, every program is just a finite number. It's a natural number. And then he realized like one way to think about a problem is you have, and this is like kind of the, the Mike Sipser approach, but you have a sort of, uh, it's a language. So of an infinite number of strings, some of them are in the language and some of them aren't, but basically you can imagine a problem is represented as an infinite binary string, where in every position, like a one means that string is in the language and a zero means it isn't. And then he applied Cantor from the 19th century and said, okay, the natural numbers are countable. So it's countably infinite. And infinite binary strings, you can use a diagonalization argument and show they're they're uh, they're uncountable. Mm -hmm. So there's just vastly more problems than there are algorithms. So, so basically, anything you can come up with for the most part, almost certainly, is not solvable by a computer. You know, and then and then he was like, let me give a particular example, and he figured out the very first computability proof. And he said, let's just walk through with a little bit of simple logic. The halting problem can't be solved by an algorithm, and that kicked off the whole enterprise of. Some things can't be solved by algorithms. Some things can't be solved by computers. And we've just been doing theory on that since the, that was the thirties he wrote that. So proving that something is impossible uh, is sort of a more a stricter version of that. Is it like proving bounds on on the performance of different algorithms? Yeah, so that... those are, yeah, so bounds are upper bounds, right? So you say uh, this algorithm does at least this well and no worse than this, but you're looking at a particular algorithm. Mm -hmm. And possibility proofs say no algorithm ever could ever solve this problem. So no algorithm could ever solve the halting problem. So it's problem-centric. It's, it's, it's making yeah. something different, uh, making a conclusive statement about the problem. Yes. And that's somehow satisfying because it's... Uh, it's philosophically interesting. Yeah. It, I mean, it all goes back to, you, you get back to Plato, it's all uh, reducto ad absurdum. Mm -hmm. So all these arguments have to start. The only way to do it is because there's an infinite number of solutions you can't go through them. Is you say, let's assume for the sake of contradiction 
that there existed something that solves this problem. And then you turn to crank a logic until you blow up the universe. Mm -hmm. And then you go back and say, okay, our original assumption that this solution exists can't be true. I, I just think philosophically, it's like a, it's a really exciting kind of beautiful thing. It's what I specialize in within distributed algorithms is more like time-bound and possibility results. Like no, no algorithm can solve this problem faster than this in this setting of all the infinite number of ways you might ever do it. So you have uh, many papers, but the one that caught my eye is Smooth Analysis of Dynamic Networks, in which you write, a problem with the worst case perspective is that it often leads to extremely strong lower bounds. These strong results motivate a key question. Is this bound robust in the sense that it captures the fundamental difficulty introduced by dynamism? Or is the bound fragile in the sense that the poor performance it describes depends on an exact sequence of adversarial changes? Fragile lower bounds leave open the possibility of algorithms that might still perform well in practice. That's a, in, in the sense of the impossible and the bounds discussion presents the interesting question. I, I just like the idea of robust and fragile bounds, but uh, what, what do you make about this kind of tension between what's provably like what, the, what bounds you can prove that are like robust and something that's a bit more fragile. And it, and also by way of answering that for this particular paper, uh, can you say what the hell are dynamic networks? Wait, what are distributed algorithms? You don't know this? Come on now. <laughs> and I have no idea. And what is smooth analysis? Yeah, well, okay, so so smooth analysis, it's, so it wasn't my idea. So Spielman and Tang in, uh, came up with this in the context of sequential algorithms. So just like uh, the normal world of an algorithm that runs on a computer. Uh, and they were they were looking at there's a, a well known algorithm called the simplex algorithm, but basically you're trying to whatever find a, a, a hole around a group of points. And there was an algorithm that worked really well in practice, but when you analyzed it, you would say, you know, I can't guarantee it's going to work well in practice because if you have just the right inputs, this thing could run really long, mm -hmm. right? But in practice, it seemed to be really fast. So smooth analysis is they came in and they said, let's assume that a bad guy chooses the inputs. It could be anything like really bad ones. And all we're going to do, is, because in, in simplex, they're numbers, we're going to just randomly put a little bit of noise on each of the numbers. And they showed if you put a little bit of noise on the numbers, suddenly simplex algorithm goes really fast. Mm -hmm. Like, oh, that explains this this lower bound, this, this idea that it could sometimes run really long was a fragile bound because it could only run a really long time if you had exactly the worst pathological mm -hmm. input. So then my collaborators and I brought this over to the world of distributed algorithms. We brought them over the general lower bounds, right? So, so in the world of dynamic networks, so a distributed algorithm is a bunch of algorithms on different machines talking to each other, mm -hmm. trying to solve a problem. And sometimes they're in a network. Uh, so you imagine them connected with network links. And a dynamic network, those can change, right? So I was talking to you, but now I can't talk to you anymore. Now I'm connected to a person over here. It's a really hard environment, mathematically speaking. And there's a lot of really strong lower bounds, which you could imagine if the network can change all the time and a bad guy's doing it, it's like hard to do things well. So there's an algorithm running on every single node in the network. Yeah. And then you're trying to say some, something of any kind that makes any kind of definitive sense about yeah. the performance of that algorithm. Yeah. So like a, we're, so I, I just submitted a new paper on this a couple of weeks ago and we were looking at a very simple problem. There's, there's a, some messages in the network. We want everyone to get them. Mm -hmm. If the network doesn't change, you can do this pretty well. You can pipeline them. There's some algorithms that work, basic algorithms that work really well. If the network can change every round, there's these lower bounds that says uh, it takes a really long time. There's a way that like, no matter what algorithm you come up with, there's a way the network can change in such a way that just really slows down your progress basically, right? 
So smooth analysis there says, yeah, but that seems like a really, you'd have really bad luck if your network mm -hmm. was changing like exactly in the right way that you needed to screw your algorithm. So we said, what if we uh, randomly just add or remove a couple edges in every round? So the adversary is trying to choose the worst possible network. And we're just tweaking it a little bit. And in that case, this is a new paper. I mean, it's a blinded submission, so maybe I shouldn't. <laughs> it's not, whatever. Um, we basically showed- uh, uh, An anonymous friend of yours a, submitted a paper. Anonymous friend of, of mine, yeah. <laughs> yeah, whose paper should be accepted. <laughs> showed that even just adding like one random edge per round, oh, you, uh, the and here's the cool thing about it, The simplest possible solution to this problem blows away that lower bound and does really well. So that's like a very fragile lower bound because we're uh -huh. like, it's, it, it's almost impossible to actually- keep things slow. I wonder how many lower bounds you can smash open with this kind of analysis and show that they're fragile. This is my interest, yeah. Because in, in distributed algorithms, there's a ton of really famous strong lower bounds, but things have to go wrong, really, really wrong uh, for these lower bound arguments to work. And so I like this approach. So this, this whole notion of fragile versus robust, I was like, well, let's go in and uh, just throw a little noise in there. And if it becomes solvable, then maybe that lower bound wasn't really something we should worry about. You know, that's going to embarrass, that's really uncomfortable. That's really embarrassing to a lot of people. Because, okay, this is the OCD thing with the with the spaces, is it feels really good when you can prove a nice bound. And uh, if you say that that bound is fragile, yeah. that that's, that's like, there's going to be a sad kid that walks... Uh, like with their lunchbox back home, like yeah, well, my uh, my lower bond doesn't matter. <laughs> no, I don't think they care. It's all, in, I don't know. It feels like to me, a lot of this theory is just math machismo. Yeah. It's like, whatever, this was a hard bound to prove. <laughs> yeah. uh, do you, what, what do you think about that? Like, uh, so if you show that something is fragile, that's more important, for, that's really important for in practice, right? Uh, so do you think kind of theoretical computer science is living in its own world, just like mathematics yeah. and their main effort which I think is very valuable is to develop ideas. It's not necessarily interesting whether it's applicable in the real world. Yeah, we don't care about the applicability. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we kind of do, but not really. And we're terrible with computers and can't do anything useful with computers. And we don't know how to code. And and you know, we're not we're not productive members of like technological society. But I do think things percolate. Exactly. You percolate from the the world of theory into the world of algorithm design, where yeah. we'll pull on the theory, and now suddenly it's useful. Uh, and then the algorithm design gets pulled into the world of practice where they say, well, actually, we can make this algorithm a lot better because in practice, really, these servers do X, Y, Z, and now we can make this super efficient. And so I do think, I mean, I tell my, I, I teach theory to the PhD students at Georgetown. I show them the sort of funnel of like, okay, we're over here doing theory, but it eventually, some of this stuff will percolate down and affect at the very end, you know, a phone. But it's a long, it's a long tunnel. But the very question you're asking at the, the highest philosophical level is fascinating. Like if you take a system, a distributed system or a network and introduce a little bit of noise into it, like how many problems of that nature are fundamentally changed by that little introduction of noise? Yeah, because it's all, about, especially in distributed algorithms, the model is everything. Like yeah. the way we work is we're incredibly precise about here's exactly, it's mathematical. Here's exactly how the network works. And it's a state machine. Algorithms are state machines. There's rounds and schedulers. We're super precise. So we can prove lower bounds. But yeah, often those lower, those impossibility results really get at the hard edges of exactly how that model works. So we'll, we'll see if this, so we, we published a paper on this, that paper you mentioned, mm -hmm. um, that kind of introduced the idea to the distributed algorithms world. And I, I think that's got some traction and there's been some follow-ups. So and we've just submitted our, 
our next. I mean, honestly, the issue with the next is that like the result fell out so easily. And this is just a mathematical machismo problem in these in these fields. Is it, there's a good chance the paper won't be accepted because there wasn't enough mathematical self-flagellation. But that's such a nice finding. So even so showing that very few, just very little bit of noise, yeah, can have a dramatic, uh, make a dramatic statement about the. Fragility. It was a big surprise to us, but um, once we figured out how to show it, it's not too hard. <laughs> and these are these are venues that for theoretical. Yeah, for theoretical. Well, okay, so the the fascinating tension there exists in other disciplines. Like one of them is machine learning, uh, which, it, despite the the power of machine learning and deep learning and all like the impact of it in the real world, the main conferences on machine learning are still resistant to application papers. Yeah, I'm not uh, sort of, and application papers broadly defined, meaning like finding almost like you would like Darwin did by like uh, going around, collecting some information saying, huh, isn't this interesting? Yeah. Uh, like those are some of the most popular blogs and yet as a paper, it's not really accepted. I, I wonder what you think about this whole world of deep learning from a perspective of, of uh, theory. It, it, the, what, what do you make of this whole discipline of the success of neural networks of how to do science on them are you excited by the possibilities of what we might discover about neural networks? Do you think it's fundamentally an engineering discipline or is there something theoretical that we might crack open one of these days in understanding something deep about how system optimization and how systems learn? I am convinced by, is it Tegmark at MIT who's- Tegmark? Yeah, Tegmark, right? Yeah. So his notion has always been convincing to me uh, that the fact that some of these models are inscrutable is not fundamental to them. Hmm. And that we can, we're gonna get better and better because in the end, you know, the, the reason why practicing computer scientists often who are doing AI or, or working at AI in industry aren't like worried about so much existential threats is because they, they see the reality is they're multiplying matrices with NumPy or something like right. this, right? Yeah, and and tweaking constants and hoping that the classifier fitness, yeah. for God's sakes, before the, the submission deadline yeah. actually like gets above some, like it feels like it's it's linear algebra and, and tedium, right? Um, but anyways, I'm really convinced with his idea that once we understand better and better what's going on from a theory perspective, it's gonna make it into an engineering discipline. So in my mind, where we're gonna end up is, okay, forget these, metaphors of neurons and these things are going to be get put down into these mathematical kind of elegant equations differentiable equations that just kind of work well and then it's going to be when i need a little bit of ai in this thing uh plumbing like let's get a little bit of a a, a pattern recognizer with a noise module and let's connect i mean I don't, you know this field better than me so i don't know if this is like a reasonable a reasonable prediction but that we're going to it's going to become less inscrutable and then it's going to become more engineerable. And then we're going to have AI and more things because we're going to have a little bit more control over how we piece together these different classification black boxes. So one of the problems, and there might be some interesting parallels that you might provide intuition on is, you know, neural networks are very large and they have a lot of it, you know, we were talking about, <laughs> uh, you know, dynamic networks and distributed uh, algorithms one of the problems with the analysis of neural networks is, uh, you know, you have a lot of nodes and you have a lot of edges. Yeah. To be able to interpret and to control different things is very difficult. There's uh, uh, there's fields in trying to figure out like mathematically how you form uh, clean representations that are like, 
like one node contains all the information about a particular thing and no other nodes is correlated yeah. to it. So like it has unique knowledge yeah. and like, but that ultimately boils down to trying to simplify this thing yeah. into that goes against this very nature, which is like deeply connected and uh, like dynamic and just, you know, hundreds of millions, billions of nodes. Yeah. And in a distributed sense, like when you zoom out, the thing has a representation and understanding of something, but the individual nodes are just doing their little exchanging yeah. thing. And it's the same thing with Stephen Wolfram when you talk about cellular automata, it's very difficult to do math when you have a huge collection of distributed things each acting on their own. And it's almost like, it's it feels like it's almost impossible to do any kind of theoretical work in the traditional sense. It almost becomes completely like a, like a biology, you become a biologist as opposed to yeah. a theoretician. You just study it experimentally. Yeah, I, so I think that's the big question, I guess, right? Yeah, is so so is the large size and interconnectedness of the, like a deep learning network fundamental to that task or are we just not very good at it yet because we're, yeah. we're using the wrong metaphor? I mean, the human brain learns with much fewer examples and, and with much less tuning of the whatever, whatever, whatever probably that requires to get those like deep mind networks up and running. But yeah, so I don't really know. But the one thing I have observed is that the, yeah, there, there's a, the mundane nature of some of the working with these models tends to lead people to think that to do it like eh, it could be skynet or it could be like a lot of pain to get you know the thermostat to do what we wanted to do and there's a lot of open questions yeah. in between there and then of course the at a distributed the distributed network of humans that use these systems so like you can have the system itself then the neural network but you can also have like little algorithms controlling the behavior of humans which is what you have with social networks it's yeah. possible that a very what is it, a toaster or whatever, the opposite of Skynet, when taken at scale, but used by individual humans and controlling their behavior can actually have the Skynet effect. Yeah. So the the, the scale there- We might have that now. We might have that now, we just don't know. Yeah. Like, as it's happening. Is, is, is Twitter creating a little mini Skynet? I mean, is, yeah. it, because what happens, it twirls out ramifications in the world. And is it really that much different if it's a robot with tentacles or a bunch of servers that- Yeah. And the destructive effects could be, I mean, it could be political, but it could also be like, you know, you could probably make an interesting case that the virus, the the coronavirus spread on Twitter too, in the minds of people. Yeah. Like the, the fear and the misinformation in some very interesting ways yeah. mixed up. And maybe this pandemic wasn't sufficiently dangerous to where that could have created a weird like, on an instability, but maybe other things might create instability. Like somebody, God forbid, detonates a nuclear weapon somewhere. And then maybe the destructive aspect of that would, would not as much be the military actions, but the way those news are spread on Twitter yeah. and the panic that creates. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I think that's a great case study, right? Like what, what <laughs> happened, not, what, I'm not suggesting that, that Lexi go let off a nuclear bomb. I meant the coronavirus, but. <laughs> okay. <laughs> but but yeah, I think that's a really interesting case study. Um, I'm interested in the counterfactual of 1995. Like yeah. do the same virus in 1995. So first of all, it would have been, I get to hear whatever, the nightly news mm -hmm. will talk about it and then there'll be my local health board will talk about it that meant mitigation decisions would probably necessarily be very sort of localized 
Mm-hmm. Okay, our community is trying to figure out what are we going to do, what's going to happen. Like we see this with schools, like where where I grew up in New Jersey, uh, there's very localized school districts. So even though they had sort of really bad viral numbers there, my school I grew up in has been open since the fall because it's very localized. Mm-hmm. It's like these teachers and these parents, what do we want to do? What are we comfortable with? I live in a school district right now in Montgomery County that's a billion dollar a year budget, 150,000 kid school district. It just can't, it's closed, you know, because it's it's too. So I'm interested in that counterfactual. Yes, yeah, so you have all this information moving around mm-hmm. and then you have the 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 effects on discourse that we were talking about earlier, that, that the, the Neil Postman style effects of Twitter, which shifts people into a sort of a dunk culture mindset of uh, don't give an inch to the other team. And we're used to this and was fired up by politics and the unique attributes of Twitter. Mm-hmm. Now throw in the coronavirus and suddenly we see decades of public health knowledge, a lot of which was honed during the HIV e- epidemic, was thrown out the window because a lot of this was happening on Twitter. And suddenly we had public health officials using a don't give an inch to the other team mindset of like, well, if we say this, that might validate something that was wrong over here. And we need to, if we say this, then maybe like that'll stop them from doing this. That's like very Twittery yeah. in a way that in 1995, it's probably not the way public health officials would be thinking. Or now it's like, well, this is, if we said this about mask, but the other team said that about mask, we can't give an inch to this. So we got to be careful. And like, we can't tell people it's okay after they're vaccinated because that might, we're giving them an inch on this. And that's very Twittery in my mind, right? That is the the impact of, of Twitter on the way we think about discourse, which is a dunking culture of don't give any inch to the other team. And it's all about slam dunks where you're completely right and they're completely wrong. It's as a rhetorical strategy is incredibly simplistic, but it's also the way that we think right now about mm-hmm. how we do debate. It combined terribly with a election year pandemic. Yeah, election year pandemic. I wonder if we can do some smooth analysis. Let's run the simulation over a few times. A little bit of noise, yeah. See, see if it can uh, dramatically change the behavior of the system. Yeah. Okay, we talked about your love for proving that something is impossible. So there's quite a few still open problems and complexity of algorithms. Uh, so let me ask, does P equal NP? Probably you, not. Probably not. If P equals NP, what kind of, you know, and you'd be really surprised somebody proves it. Yeah. What would that proof look like? And why would that even be, what would that mean? What would that proof look like? In what possible universe could P equals NP? Is there I mean, something insightful you could say there? It could It could be true. And I mean, I'm not a complexity theorist, but every complexity theorist I know is convinced they're not equal. And are basically not working on it anymore. I mean, there is a million dollars at stake if you can if you can solve the proof. It's one of the Millennium Prizes. The, okay, so here here's how I think the P not equals NP proof is going to eventually happen. Mm-hmm. I think it's going to fall out, and it's going to be not super simple, but not as hard as people think. Because my 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 theory about a lot of theoretical computer science, based on just some results I've done, so this is a huge extrapolation, is that a lot of what we're doing is just obfuscating deeper mathematics. Mm-hmm. So like this happens to me a lot, not a lot, but it's happened to me a few times in my work where you know, we obfuscate it because we say, well, there's an algorithm and it has this much you know, memory and they're connected on a network and okay, here's our setup and now we're trying to see how fast it can solve a problem and people do bounds about it and then the end it turns out that like we were just obfuscating some underlying you know, uh, mathematical thing that already existed. right? So this has happened to me. I, I had this paper I was quite fond of a while ago. It was looking at this problem called contention resolution where you 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 put an unknown set of people on a shared channel and they're trying to break symmetry so mm-hmm. it's like an ethernet whatever only one person can use it at a time you try to break symmetry there's all these bounds people have proven over the years 
about how long it takes to do this, right? And like I discovered at some point, there's this one combinatorial result from the early 1990s. All of these lower bound proofs all come from this. And in fact, it improved a lot of them and simplified a lot. You could put it all in one paper, mm-hmm. you know? It's like, wow. are we really? And then, okay, so this new paper that I, I submitted a couple of weeks ago, I found you could take some of these same lower bound proofs for this contention resolution problem. You could reprove them using Shannon's source code theorem. That actually, when you're breaking contention, what you're really doing is building a code over, uh, you know, uh, if you have a distribution on the network sizes, it's a code over that source. And if you plug in a high entropy information source and plug in from 1948, the source code theorem that says on a noiseless channel, you can't send things uh, at a faster rate than the entropy allows, the exact same lower bounds fall back out again, right? So like this type of thing happens. There's There's some famous lower bounds in distributed algorithms that turned out to all be algebraic topology underneath the covers mm-hmm. and uh, they won the girdle prize for working on that so my sense is what's going to happen is at some point someone really smart to be very exciting is going to realize there's some sort of other representation of what's going on with these turing machines trying to sort of efficiently and compute it'll actually fall out of that and there'll be an existing mathematical result that applies someone or yeah. something i guess it could be but, ai uh, theorem provers kind of thing it could be yeah i mean not a well yeah I mean, there's theorem provers, like what that means now, which is not fun. Uh, it's just a bunch of uh, very carefully formulated postulates that, but I take your point. Yeah. Yeah. So, okay. Uh, you know, on, on a small tangent, and then, then you're kind of implying that mathematics, it, it almost feels like a kind of weird evolutionary tree that ultimately leads back to some kind of ancestral, a few fundamental ideas that all are just like, they're all somehow connected. Uh, in that sense, do you think uh, math is fundamental to our universe and we're just like slowly trying to understand th- these patterns or is, is, is it is it discovered or is it just a, a little game that we play yeah. uh, uh, amongst ourselves to try to yeah. fit little patterns to the world? Yeah, that's the question, right? That's the physicist question. I mean, I'm probably, I'm in the discovered camp but I don't do theoretical physics, so I know they have a they they feel, feel like they have a stronger claim to, to answering that question. But so everything you don't comes back about- to it. Everything comes back to it. I mean, all of physics come, the physics. The fact that the universe is well, okay, it's a complicated question. So how how often do you think how deeply does this result describe the fundamental reality of nature? So the 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 reason I hesitated, the, the, because it's something I'm, I taught this seminar and did a little work on what are called biological algorithms. Nice. So there's this notion cool. of, so physicists used mathematics to explain the universe, right? And it was unreasonable that mathematics works so well. You know, all these differential equations, why does that explain all we need to know about thermodynamics and gravity and all the all these type of things? Well, there's this there's this movement within the intersection of computer science and biology, uh, this is kind of Wolframium, I guess, really, yeah. that uh, algorithms can be very explanatory, right? That like if you're trying to if you're trying to explain parsimoniously something about like an ant colony or something like this, you're not going to ultimately it's not going to be explained as an equation, like a physics equation. It's going to be explained by an algorithm. So like this algorithm run 
distributedly is going to explain the behavior. So that's mathematical, but not quite mathematical, but it is if you think about an algorithm like a lambda calculus, which brings you back to the the world of mathematics. So I'm thinking out loud here, but basically abstract math is sort of like unreasonably effective at explaining a lot of things. And that's just what I feel like I glimpse. I'm not a um, not like a super well-known theoretician. I don't have really famous results. So even as a sort of middling, you know, career theoretician, I keep encountering this where we think we're solving some problem about computers and algorithms. And it's some much deeper underlying math. It's Shannon, but Shannon is entropy, but entropy was really, you know, goes all the way back to whatever it was, Boyle, or all the way back to looking at the early physics. And and it's, anyways, to me, I think it's amazing. Yeah, I mean, it, but it could be the flip side of that could be just our brains draw so much pleasure from the uh, deriving generalized theories and simplifying the universe that we just naturally see that kind of simplicity in everything. Yeah, so that's the whole, you know, Newton to Einstein, right? Yeah. So you can you can say this must be right because it's so predictive. Well, it's not quite predictive because Mercury wobbles a little bit, but I think we have it set and then you turn out no, Einstein. And then and then you get Bohr, like, no, not Einstein. It's actually statistical. And yeah, so that well, it's, it's, hard, it's hard to also know like where a smooth analysis fits into all that, where a little bit of noise, like you can say something very clean about a system and then a little bit of noise, like the average case is actually very different. And so, yeah. I mean, that's where like the quantum mechanics comes in. It's like, ugh, why does it have to be randomness in this? Yeah, I would have to do this complex statistics. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so to be determined yeah that, that'll be my next book that'd be ambitious <laughs> the <laughs> fundamental the fundamental core of reality comma and some advice for being more productive at work <laughs> <laughs> can i ask you just if it's possible to do an overview and just some brief comments of wisdom on the process of publishing a book what's that process entail what are the different options and what's your recommendation uh for somebody that wants to write a book like yours, a nonfiction book that discovers something interesting about this world. So what I, I usually advise is follow the follow the process as is. Uh, don't try to reinvent. I think that, that happens a lot where you'll try to reinvent the way the publishing industry should work. Like this is kind of not like in a business model ways, but just like this is what I want to do. I want to write a thousand words a day and I want to do this and I'm going to put it on the internet. And, and uh, the publishing industry is very specific about how it works. And so like when I got started writing books, which was at a very young age, so, you know, I, I sold my first book at the age of 21. The way I did that is I found the family friend uh, that was an agent and I said, I'm not trying to make you be my agent. Just explain to me how this works, not just how the world works, but give me the hard truth about how would a 21 year old under what conditions could a 21 year old sell a book and what would that look like and she just explained it to me well you have to do this and have to be a subject that it made sense for you to write and you would have to do this type of writing for other publications to validate it and blah 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 and you have to get the agent first and i learned the whole game plan mm -hmm. and then i executed and, and so the rough game plan is with nonfiction: you get the agent first and the agent's going to sell it to the publishers so like you're never sending something directly to the publishers and nonfiction: you're not writing the book first Right, the you're going to get an advance from the publisher once sold, uh, and then you're going to do the primary writing of the book. In fact, it will 
in most circumstances hurt you if you've already written. <laughs> if you've already right? written. So, yeah. So you're you're trying to sell, well, I guess the agent, first you sell it to the agent, then the agent sells it to the publishers. Yeah, it's, it's much easier to get an agent than a book deal. So the, the thought is, if you can't get an agent, then why would you? So you, you start with the, and also, and the way this works with a good agent is they know all the editors and they have lunch with the editors and they're always just like, hey, what projects do you have coming? What are you looking for? Here's one of my authors. That's the way all these deals happen. It's not, you're not emailing a manuscript to a, a slush pile. Yeah, and so so first of all, the agent takes a percentage, and then the publishers. This is where the process comes in. They they take also a cut that's probably ridiculous. So if you try to reinvent uh, the system, you'll probably be frustrated by the percentage that everyone takes relative to how much bureaucracy and efficiency, yeah, ridiculousness there is in the system. Your recommendation is like you're just one ant. Stop trying to uh, build your own ant colony. Well, or 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 if you create your own process for how it should work, you're just not going the book's not going to get published. So so there's the separate question, <laughs> yeah. the economic question of like, should I create my own, like self-publish it or do something like that? But yeah. but putting that aside, there's a lot of people I encounter that want to publish a book with a main publisher, but they invent their own rules for how uh, that works, right? So so then the alternative though is self-publishing, and the the so the downside, there's a lot of downsides. It's like it's almost like publishing an opinion piece in the New York Times versus writing your own blog. There's no reason why writing a blog post on Medium yeah. can't get way more attention and legitimacy and long-lasting prestige than a New York Times article. But nevertheless, for most people, writing in a prestigious newspaper, quote-unquote prestigious, uh, is is just easier. And, well, and depends on your goal. So, right. you know, like I push you towards a big publisher because I think your goal is it's huge ideas. You want impact, right? You're gonna have more impact, you know, but even though in, like actually, so there's different ways to measure impact, right? In the world of ideas. In the world of ideas. Yeah. And also, yeah, in the world of ideas, it's kind of like the clubhouse thing. Now, even if the audience is not large, the people in the audience are very interesting. It's, it's like the conversation feels like that has long lasting impact yeah uh, among among the people who in different and disparate industries that are also then starting their own conversations and all that kind of yeah, stuff yeah because you have other so like so like self publishing a book um the goals that would solve you have much better ways of getting to those goals might be part of it right so if there's the financial aspect of well you get to keep more of it i mean the podcast is probably going to crush right what the, the book's going to do anyways yeah. right yeah if it's uh want to get directly to certain audiences or crowds that might be harder through a traditional publisher, there's better ways to talk to those crowds. Right. It, it could be on Clubhouse with all these new technologies. A self-published book's not going to be the most effective way to find your way to a new crowd. But if the idea is like, I want to have a leave a dent in the world of ideas, then to have a vulnerable old publisher, you know, put out your book in a nice hardcover and and do the things they do. Uh, that goes a long way, and they do do a lot. I mean, there's it's it's very difficult actually. There's so much involved in, in well, putting they, together a book. They get books into bookstores and all that kind of stuff. All that, and and from an efficiency standpoint, I mean, just the time involved in trying time. to do this yourself is. is they have I know a process, do it. right? Like you said, they have a process. They've got a process. I mean, I know like Jocko did this recently, started his own imprint, and I have a couple other, but it's a, it's huge overhead. I mean, if you like, if you run a business and you uh, so. Like Jocko is a good case study, right? So he got, you know, fed up with Simon and Schuster uh, dragging their feet and said, I'm going to start my own imprint then if you're not yeah. going to publish my kid's book. Um, but he 
what does he do? He runs businesses, right? Yeah. So I think in his world, like I already run, I'm I'm a I'm a partner in whatever in origin and I have this and that. And so it's like, yeah, we can run businesses. That's what we know how to do. That's what I do. I run businesses. I have people. But for like you or I, we don't run businesses. It'd yeah. be terrible. Yeah. Yeah. Or especially these kinds of businesses, right? So yeah. I, I do want to launch a business, but very different. It's technology business. It's very, very different. different very uh, different. Yeah, it's very, very different. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you, this is like, okay, I need copy editors and, and graphic book binders, and I need a contract with the printer, but oh, the printer doesn't have slots. And so now I have to try to, I mean, it's. I get so, this is, I need to shut this off in my brain, but I get so frustrated when the system could clearly be improved. It's the thing that you're mentioning. Yeah. It's like, this is so inefficient. Every time I go to the DMV or something like that, you think like, ah, oh, this could be done so much better. Yeah. Uh, but you know, and the same thing is the worry with the, with an editor, which I guess would come from the publisher. Like, who would who would uh, how much supervision on your book did you receive? Like, hey, do you think this is too long, or do you think the title, like title, how much choice do you have in the title, in the cover, in the presentation and the branding and all that kind of stuff? Yeah, I mean, uh, it, all of it depends, right? So when it comes on the the relationship on the with the editor on the writing, it depends on the editor and it depends on you. It's mm -hmm. so like at this point, I'm on my seventh book and I write for a lot of major publications. And at this point, I have what I feel like is a a voice that I've and a level of craft that I I'm very comfortable with, right? So my editor is not going to be she kind of is going to trust me and it's going to be more big picture. Like uh, I'm losing the thread here or this seems yeah. like it could be longer. Whereas the first book I wrote when I was 21, I had notes such as you start a lot of sentences with so uh, you don't use any contractions because I've been doing scientific writing. We yeah. don't use contractions. Yeah. Like you should probably use contractions. That like, was way more, you know, I had to go back and, and rewrite awesome. the whole thing. Yeah. But ultimately the recommendation, I mean, we, we talked offline and sort of, I was thinking loosely, not really sure, but I was thinking of writing a book and there's a kind of desire to go self-publishing, not for financial reasons. And the, the money can be good, by the way, right? I mean, mm -hmm. it, it's very it's very uh, power law type dist distributed, right? So so the money on a hardcover is somewhere between one or $2 a book. So the In thing is, bucket, yeah. I personally uh, don't- But then you give up 15% to the agent. So yeah. uh, I personally don't care about money as I've mentioned before, but I, I, for some reason, really don't like spending money on things that are not worth it. Like, yeah. I don't care if I get money, I just don't like spending money on the, like feeding a system that's inefficient. It's like I'm contributing to the problem. That's my biggest problem. Right. So you think that you're, you're worried about the inefficiencies of the public? Yeah, the fact that- uh, Like the overhead, the number of people involved or- The, the overhead, yeah. the, e the emails again, the, 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 the fact that they have this way of speaking, which I'm allergic to many people, like that's very marketing speak. Like you could tell they've been having Zoom meetings all day. It's like, as opposed to a sort of creative collaborators that are like also a little bit crazy. Yeah, and well, I, I suppose the, the some one, of that is finding the right people. Finding the right people. That's what I would say. I say there's definitely, and maybe it's just good fortune, uh, good fortune in terms of like my agents and editors I've worked with. There's really good people who they see the vision or smart or incredibly literary. And they, they yeah. And, like, and like, let's, yeah, I had a great editor when I was first moving into hardcover books, for example, it was my first, you know, big book advance and my first sort of big deal. And, uh, he was like a senior editor and, and it was very useful. You know, he was like, we had a lot of long talks, right? I was, uh, so th this was my, my fourth book. So good. They can't ignore you. It was my first, my big hardcover idea book. Um, 
And we had a lot of talks, like even before I started writing it, just let's talk about books and his philosophy. He'd been in the business for a long time. Yeah. He was the head of the, the head of the imprint. It was useful. Yeah. But, uh, I mean, the other frustrating thing is how long the whole thing takes. Relative. Takes a long time. Yeah. But I suppose that's, you just had to accept Well, that. I, yeah, I handed in this manuscript for the, the, the book that comes out now, like when this, I handed it in, I mean, over the summer, like during the pandemic. So it's not, it's not terrible. Right. And we were editing during the pandemic and I finished it in the spring. We've talked most of today, except for a little bit of computer science, most of today about a productive life. Um, how does uh, love, friendship, and family fit into that? Is there, um, do you find that there's a tension? Is it possible for relationships to energize the whole process to benefit? Or is it ultimately a trade-off, but because life is short and uh, ultimately we seek happiness, not productivity, that we have to accept that tension. Yeah. I mean, I think relationships is the, that's the found, that's the whole deal. I, like I thought about this the other day. I don't think context was, I was thinking about if I was going to give like an advice speech, like a commencement yeah. address or like giving advice to, to young people. And uh, like the big question I have for young people is if they haven't already, bad things are going to happen that you don't control. Mm -hmm. So what's the plan, right? Like, let's start, let's start figuring that out now because it's not all good. You know, some people get off better than others, but eventually stuff happens, right? You get sick, something falls apart, the, the economy craters, the someone you know, like, you know, dies, like all sorts of bad stuff is going to happen, right? So how, how are we going to do this? Like, how do, how do we like live life and life is hard and in ways that is unfair and unpredictable. Um, then relationships is the, that's the buffer for all of that because we're wired for it. Right. I went down this, this rabbit hole with digital minimalism. I went down this huge rabbit hole about the human brain and sociality. Mm -hmm. It's all we're wired to do. It's like all of our brain is for this. Like everything, all of our mechanisms, everything is made to service social connections because it's what kept you alive. You know, I mean, you had the, your tribal connections is, is how you didn't uh, starve during a famine. People would share food, et cetera. Um, and so you can't neglect that. And it's like everything. And and people feel it, right? Like there's no, our social networks are hooked up to the pain center. That's why it feels so terrible when you miss someone or like someone dies or something, right? That's like how seriously we take it. There's a, a, a pretty accepted theory that the default mode network, like a lot of what the default mode network is doing. So the sort of the default state our brain goes into when we're not doing something in particular is practicing sociality mm. it practicing interactions thing because it's, it's so, you know, crucial to what we do. It's like at the core of human thriving. So I've more recently, the way I think about it is like relationships first. Hmm. Like, okay, given that foundation of putting like, and I don't think we put nearly enough time into it. I worry that social media is reducing relationships, strong relationships, strong relationships where you're sacrificing non-trivial time and attention and resources, whatever, on behalf of other people. And that's the net that is going to allow you to get through anything. Then, all right, now what do we want to do with a uh, the surplus that remains. May I want to build some, build some fire, build some tools. So put relationships first. I like the worst case analysis from the computer science perspective. Put relationships first. Yeah, because everything else is just uh, assuming average case. <laughs> assuming things kind of yeah. keep going as they were going. And you're neglecting the fundamental human drive. Like we we have this, we talk about the boredom instinct. We want to build things. We want to have impact. We want to do productivity. That's not nearly as clear cut of a drive of we need people. But if we look at the real worst case uh, analysis here is one day 
you're pretty young now, but that's not going to last very long. You're going to die one day. Is that something you think about? A little bit. Are you afraid of death? Well, I'm of the mindset of, let's make that a productivity hack. <laughs> I'm of the mindset of, um, we need to confront that soon. Yeah. So let's do what we can now so that when we really confront and think about it, we're, we're more likely to feel better about it. So in other words, like let's let's focus now on living and doing things in such a way that we're proud of so that when it really comes time to confront that, we're more likely to say like, okay, I feel kind of good about the situation. So what, uh, when you're laying on your deathbed, would you, in looking back, what would make you think like, oh, I did a, I did okay. I'm proud of that. Yeah. I optimized the hell out of that. That's a good, I mean, it's a good question to, to, to go backwards on. I mean, this, this is like David Brooks's uh, eulogy virtues versus resume virtues. Right. So his argument is that, uh, and that's another interesting DC area person. I keep thinking of, of interesting DC area people. All right. David Brooks is here too. <laughs> yeah. Um, you, he, his argument, he thinks eulogy virtues is, uh, so what we eulogize is different than what we promote on the resume. Uh, that's his whole thing now, right? His second mountain wrote the character. Both these books are, he has this whole premise of there's like this professional phase and there's a phase of, of uh, giving of yourself and sacrificing on behalf of other people. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Maybe it's all mixed together, right? You want to, I think living by a code is important, right? I mean, uh, this is something that's not emphasized enough. I always think of advice that my undergrad should be given that that they're not given, especially at a place like Georgetown that has this like deep history of, you know, trying to promote human flourishing because of the Jesuit connection. Yeah. Uh, there's such, there's such uh, resiliency and pride that comes out of living well even when it's hard like living according to a code living according to which which you know i think religion used to structure this for people and uh, but in its absence you need some sort of replacement but this uh even when things were soldiers get this a lot right they experience this a lot even when things were tough i was able to persist in living in this way that i knew was right even though it wasn't the easiest thing to do in the moment like fewer things give humans more resiliency it's like having done that your relationships were strong, right? Many people coming to your funeral is a standard. Like a lot of people are going to come to your funeral. Like, I mean, you matter to a lot of people. Yeah. And then maybe having done to, to the extent of whatever capabilities you are happen to be granted, you know, and they're different for different people. And some people can sprint real fast and some people can do math problems. Uh, try to actually do something of impact. I'll just uh, promise to give gift cards to anybody who shows up to the funeral. <laughs> You're going to hack it. <laughs> I'm going <laughs> to hack gonna, even the funeral. There's uh, going to be a lottery wheel you spin when you come in and someone <laughs> goes away with $10,000. The See, the problem is like with, with all this, the living by principles, uh, living a principled life, focusing on relationships and kind of thinking of this life as this perfect thing kind of forgets the notion that none of it, you know, makes any sense, right? Like the, like, it, it it kind of implies that this is like a video game and you want to get a high score as opposed to none of this even makes sense. Like, why would he, like, what that, <laughs> like, like, what does it even mean to die? It's going to be over. It's like everything I do, all these productivity hacks, all this life, all these efforts, all these creative efforts, kind of assume it's going to go on forever. There's a kind of uh, sense of immortality. And I don't even know how it intellectually makes sense that it ends. Uh, of course, got to ask you in that context, what do you think is the meaning of it all? Especially for a computer scientist. I mean, yeah. there's got to be some mathematical. Uh, yeah, 27 or what's the, what's <laughs> the uh, Douglas Adams? Number. Yeah, or 42. 40, 42, okay. 20, 27 yeah. is a better number. I should, I should read more sci-fi. 
Um, well, maybe I, you're onto something with a 27. People I don't want to give away too that. much, but just <laughs> trust me, 27. It's divisible. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, I mean, I don't know, obviously, right? I mean, I'm a, I was hoping you would. Yeah, I, I don't know. But but going back to what you were saying about the sort of the existentialist or the, sort of the more nihilist style approach, the one thing that, that there is are intimations, right? So that there's these intimations that human has of somehow this feels right and this feels wrong, this feels good, this feels like I'm doing, I'm aligned with something, you know, when I'm acting with courage to save whatever, right? It's not... These intimations are a grounding against arbitrariness. Like one of the ideas I'm really interested in is that uh, when you look at religion, right? So I'm, I'm, I'm interested in world religions. For, for my, my grandfather was a, uh, like a theologian that studied and wrote all these books. And I'm very interested in this type of stuff. And there's this great book that's it's, it's not um, specific to a particular religion, but it's Karen Armstrong wrote this great book called The Case for God. She's very interesting. She was a, a Catholic nun who sort of left that religion and is, but one of the smartest thinkers uh, in terms of like accessible theological thinking that's not tied to any particular religion. Her whole argument is that the way to understand religion, you, you first of all, you have to go way back pre-enlightenment where all this was formed. We got messed up thinking about religion post-enlightenment, right? And and um, these were operating systems for making sense of intimations. The one thing we had were these different intimations of this feel like awe and mystical experience, and this feels some. There's something you feel when you act in a certain way and don't act in this other way, and it was like the scientists who were trying to study and understand the model of the atom by just looking at experiments and trying to understand what's going on. Like the the great religions of the world were basically figuring out how do we make sense of these intimations and live in alignment with them and build a life of meaning around that? What were the tools they were using? They were using ritual. They were using belief. They were using action, but all of it was like an OS. It was like a, a liturgical model of the atom that, that, that it's uh, hard coded in. So it's, it did, uh, through, through the evolutionary process. Some, I, mean, they wanted, the but, I mean, they wouldn't have called it that back then or yeah. I mean, whether they said who they didn't have that as pre-enlightenment, they, they just said, this is here. And, mm -hmm. and, the directive is to to try to live in alignment with that. Well, then I want to ask who wrote the original code. Yeah, that's, so, that's so the open question. Yeah, so so Armstrong lays out this good argument, and and where it gets really interesting is that that she emphasizes that all of this was considered ineffable, right? So the the whole notion, and this is like rich in Jewish tradition in particular, and also in Islamic tradition, we can't comprehend and understand what's going on here. Right, and so the best we can do to approximate understanding and live in alignment is we like act as if this is true, do these rituals, have these actions, or whatever. Post enlightenment, a lot of that got. Once we learned about enlightenment, mm -hmm. we grew these suspicions around religion that are very much of the modern era, right? So, like the the Karen Armstrong, like uh, Sam Harris's critique of religion makes no sense, right? The, the the critiques based on well, this is you're making the assent to propositions that you think are true for which you do not have evidence that they are true. She's like that's an enlightenment thing, right? Like, this is not the context, and this would not the religion is the Rutherford model of the atom. Like it's not actually maybe what is underneath happening, but this model explains why your chemical equations work. And so this is like the way religion was. You you there's a god, we'll call it this. This is how it works. We do this ritual, we act in this way. It aligns with it just like the model of the atom predicted why, you know, Na and Cl is going to become salt. This predicts that you're going to feel and live in alignment, right? It's like this beautiful sophisticated theory which actually matches how a lot of great theologians have have, you know, thought about it. Um, but then when you come forward in time, yeah, maybe it's evolution. I mean, I, this is like what Peterson hints at, right? Like mm -hmm. he's basically, he's not, he 
he doesn't like to get super pinned down on this, but I'm kind of seems where he yeah, sees he's, it that he's way. almost like searching for the words. He focuses more on like Jung and other people, but uh, I mean, I know he's very Jungian, but but that same type of analysis, I think, roughly speaking, like Armstrong is sort of a, it's kind of like a Petersonian analysis, but she's looking more at the deep history of religion than, uh, but yeah, he throws in an evolutionary. Yeah. Aspect, and I wonder which, what uh, home it finds. I, I wonder what the new home is if religion dissipates. Uh, what the new home for these kinds of natural inclinations are. Uh, yeah. Whether and, it's technology, whether... And if it's evolution, I mean, this is Francis Collins's book also. He's like, well, that's a religious... That could be a very religious notion. I don't. I think this stuff is interesting. I'm not a very religious person, but I'm uh, I'm thinking it's not a bad idea. I mean, maybe, maybe <laughs> what replaces... Honestly, like maybe what replaces religion is a return to religion, but in this sort of more sophisticated... I mean, if you went back... Uh, yeah, I mean, it's the issue with like a lot of the the, the recent critiques. I think is it's a it's a straw man critique in a complicated way, right? Because the, the the whole way these the way this works. I mean, the theologians. If you're reading Paul Tillich, if you're reading Heschel, if you're reading these people, they're they're thinking very sophisticatedly about religion in terms of this. It's ineffable, and we're just these things, and is is this deep it connects us to these things in a way that puts life in alignment. We can't really explain what's going on because we're, we our brains can't handle it, right? Mm-hmm. Um, for the average person, though, this notion of live as if is kind of how religions work. Mm-hmm. Is live, live as if this is true. It's like an, an OS for getting in alignment with, mm-hmm. because we, we, through ev- cultural evolution, like you behave in this way, do these rituals. Live as if this is true um, gives you the what the goal you're looking for. But that's a complicated thing, live as if this is true, because if you especially if you're not a theologian, to say, uh, yeah, I, this is not true in an enlightenment sense, but I'm living as if it kind of takes the heat out of it. But of course, it's what people are doing because, you know, highly religious people still do bad things where if you really were, you know, there's absolutely a hell and I'm definitely going to go to it if I mm-hmm. do this bad thing. You would never have, you know, no one would ever murder anyone if well, they were an evangelical Christian, right? So so it's like what, uh, this is kind of a tangent that I'm 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 on shaky ground here, but it's something I've been interested off and on a lot. Well, it's, it's fast. I mean, I think we're in some sense searching for, because it is. it does make for a good operating system. We're searching for a good live as if X is true, and we're searching for a new X. Yeah. And maybe artificial intelligence will be the very, the new gods that we're so desperately looking yeah. for. Or it'll just spit out 42. <laughs> I thought it was 27. Uh, Cal, this is, uh, as you know, I've been a huge fan uh, so are a huge number of people that uh, I've spoken with. So they've been telling me I absolutely have to talk to you. This was a huge honor. This was really fun. Thanks for wasting all this time with me. Yeah, no, likewise, man. I've been a longtime fan. So this was a lot of fun. Yeah, thanks, man. Thanks for listening to this conversation with Cal Newport. And thank you to our sponsors, ExpressVPN, Linode Linux Virtual Machines, SunBasket Meal Delivery Service, and Simply Safe Home Security. Click the sponsor links to get a discount and to support this podcast. And now let me leave you with some words from Cal himself. Clarity about what matters provides clarity about what does not. Thank you for listening and hope to see you next time.